Hello and welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast, and uh, I am your co-host and Milfin residence, Neve, and I'm joined here by uh, my co-host and the token cis straight white dude on the Export Audio Network, Connor. Thank you. This is a beautiful introduction, <laughs> and welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah, uh, it's very exciting to get your unique perspective. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's so scarce out there, you know? Yeah. And, and we're going to be covering Ghost in the Shell. No. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be covering. God damn it. Not again. <laughs> we're going to be covering, uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion episodes seven through 13. Um, that was legitimately just a brain fart of mine. Yeah, I, I don't know if you have any preceding thoughts, or else I'll just get right into episode seven here. Um, I guess I kinda... uh, my only preceding thought is we need to work our way up to doing like more intro bits, you know, like we did with yeah. Kohai. Yeah, that's we've I... gotten some feedback about about that saying more intro bits. So yeah, they're coming. Um, we did have some good intro bits with Crow High, although the Crow High theme song, it turned out, is like actually incredibly hard to like kind of ramp up out of like an intro bit into the actual theme song, and so I felt like it was always just like a bizarre smash cut suddenly, um, because I couldn't get a version of it that has the like part where Kamiyama is talking about like don't do this at home, and there's just kind of like you know low musical sound in the background and then it like ramps up um mm-hmm. i couldn't get like a clean version of that that didn't have kamiyama talking and if like i could get it it would have been so good and it frustrated me every time i edited it but anyway yeah this is r- relevant to neon genesis evangelion this is why you all come and listen to our incredibly focused and like just no weird tangents show yeah are very like serious and disciplined examination of these classic anime. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I'll get into episode seven here. Um, one note: I my like synopses for these episodes I feel like are a little bit shorter than some of the ones that we've done previously. In part, just because I think like these aren't fully filler episodes, but this is the most like sometimes people will talk about oh like the first half of Evangelion is uh, like a monster of the week style show. And like, if you go back and listen to our previous episode of this podcast, like episodes one through six are not really that like there, there are six episodes. There are three like monsters that they fight in there, but also they're like fairly thematically heavy episodes. Whereas this one, like there's still stuff happening in the background, but like episode seven is just completely excised. Like, entirely from the manga because a lot of what happens there is like not actually that central to the the plot of the show as a whole so again it's not quite goku learns how to drive a car but uh <laughs> i feel like this is like the most fillery episode one although i'm sure we'll still find like way too much to talk about so yeah episode seven we start out with like kind of a slice of life oh here's like what's going on in the lives of, of these characters. Um, we get a little bit of world building that kind of gets mentioned as this goes on. Uh, they talk about how Ava unit two is coming from Germany, which we'll see in the next episode, but it's like, Oh, like other countries are working on this. We get a little bit more about the second impact, which like, if we want to get into second impact, we can talk about it as it goes. But, uh, you know, I think the big thing here is that it's just like, Oh, there was like an explosion or something when they discovered the first angel. And then Misato and Ritsuko head off to, it's like a conference, I guess. I don't know if it's mm-hmm. like specifically a press conference for this jet alone thing, or if, if it was like a broader scientific conference, I didn't like quite pick up on that. But um, basically there's this other I, team saying, I get the impression. I got the impression that it's like, it's both where it's, it's yeah. like a summit or whatever, but then, the gentleman people are like presenting their um, yeah they're like they're like at least the keynote yeah. is the vibe that this is at least the keynote thing if not like the entirety of it so anyway this jet alone team they announced this or i guess i think they've maybe like announced but they're like debuting this alternative unmanned solution to finding the angels and i'm gonna like just describe it here i kind of put it as the monster of the week for this episode, which it is less organic in appearance than the Ava. It's like a little bit more rounder, a little bit more clearly robotic. Um, the arms are kind of like tube-like almost, you know, mm-hmm. like imagine some of the like older robot designs, but like, it's not like full on Dalek or whatever, but it's like, <laughs> it's pushed slightly more that way from like, oh, this is just a common writer, like robot or whatever. And it's, it's something that you might see in like a Gundam yeah. series. It's reminiscent of that. And Ritsuko is like basically heavily critiquing the Jet Alone project. And the like scientist in charge of it is like, oh, look at this hysterical woman. Like, you know, the nerve is scared because like their thing is being threatened, blah, blah, blah. Um, we do get this, like a lot of it is just kind of the like bickering back and forth. But I think the, the interesting tidbit here to like hold on to, if you didn't catch it, viewers at home is that it's like, 
it's kind of just sad that like the reason that the Avas have humans is to create AT fields. So that's just like a new thing we now know about AT fields um, is somehow it's tied to humans or something. And then during the test of the jet alone, it stops responding to orders and is basically just like continuing to kind of run forward and just like plowing through anything in its way. And uh, also it has a nuclear power generator on it, which was one of the things that Ritsuko critiqued as well. Um, and that's likely to explode. Hisato like bravely goes in and is trying to stop it. And in the process discovers that like one, it was probably intentionally sabotaged because the password that's supposed to work doesn't work um, to disarm it. And then she's like trying to push in these things to like shut it down manually. Clearly it's not going to be able to do it in time. And yet like, at the last second, they just all retract and it like shuts itself down. And then the end like pretty clearly indicates that Ritsuko was the one who was behind this like sabotage of the test to make it look unreliable, which I was going to put in my summary here. And I just wrote comma, which, and then uh, got distracted filling in some of my other notes. So <laughs> I was going to know if you, you have, I noticed that yeah. before you started and I was like, should I say something? Nah, it would be funny. When, when um, you reach this point, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say one thing real quick here, and then I'm just gonna throw to you for like more that you have to say here. But I forget if you actually mentioned it on the recording last time, or if it was like something that we messaged to each other online. But you said that you have this theory that all of the fan service shots in Evangelion are representing another character's perspective. And there is definitely a fan service shot of Misato's boobs as she's like getting dressed to go into the jet alone. And the only other person in that room is Ritsuko. And what I'm saying to you, Connor, is I did not know that you are also a Misato Ritsuko shipper. So um, <laughs> this is something that I didn't realize we had in common, but I'm I'm really happy to find this out. Um, you know, it's a it's yeah. a it's a ship that's like dear to my heart. You know, as a as a brown haired woman in love with a blonde haired woman, it it really speaks to me. So, <laughs> I mean, it could also be Jet Alone, yeah. No, but they're not like in Jet Alone at that point. Um, yeah, it's I actually Misato don't getting even, ready to go in. Um, I actually don't even remember this this scene specifically. <laughs> um, I think I think the like read that would fit with your theory is that like Ritsuko is observing like oh how foolish like how vulnerable you're making yourself and like in fact this is just like a thing that i already have planned and now you're gonna go like risk your life for this and i'm like going to have to stop the meltdown that i might allow otherwise because like you're gonna be in it and so it's like some degree of like both affection and then being like oh look at like how vulnerable that you're like changing in some back room here to try and go in and stop this. But really I would just like it if they kissed. So I'm going to, I'm going to hold to your theory for right now that all fan service shots represent another character's perspective and just assume that this is like canon that Ritsuko has the hots for Misato. So well, anyway, I'm, I'm sure you have I'm more glad. insightful things to, to say. <laughs> I'm glad that my theory can be used for good. Um, I mean, not to like contradict that, but just to like mo moderate my position. I don't think it necessarily has to be the case that like all of the shots are all of the like fan service shots are 
from another character's perspective, but yeah. I think many, <laughs> I think most are. Um, I and, Since you've said that, I've been intentionally, like, every time that there's a fan service shot, thinking about what character could this be from, like, what pers- character's perspective, so... Yeah, so I mean, I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that it, that it works out here as well. <laughs> Even though you know, maybe this moment refutes my theory. I, I like your interpretation better. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't even know where where to start. Um, I guess I'll just go back to your um, kind of like prefatory comments about this chunk of episodes. I I definitely agree. Like, in some ways, this like this group of episodes it seems to kind of take its foot off the gas a little bit even though it is still doing like the trademark ava like intense you know monster like eldritch monster fights and and a lot of the stuff that is happening still like thematically i think still continues um yeah but it's like even even the monster fights are less like intense and gruesome than the fights we were talking about last time. Um, They like feel more in line with like kind of a typical approach that you might get to some mecha stuff that is like leaning a little bit more into the fact that it is like a giant robot lets you uh, dissociate somewhat from the like actual violence that is happening that I don't think the first six episodes and especially like episode one and two want you to be able to do. Um, whereas this is just like, like, I don't like, there's so many stuff in the first episodes where it was like, literally like hand to hand combat. This is really intense. Even the time that they shoot it, it's like this whole ordeal to be able to shoot it. And then, you know, Ava unit zero. Yeah. is like almost getting melted and killed in the process. And like, we have a thing later on where Asuka is going to use, like her Ava as a shield and yet it feels less like profoundly um like threatening in the mm-hmm. same way to like Asuka's life. There's no like we have to jump out and try and rescue Asuka from the plug suit because of this. And so like I yeah, I I agree that like they've pulled back a lot on on some of this stuff and I I don't want to just say like, oh, these are all filler episodes because they are still progressing things. But it is, again, like you said, like the the pace is kind of slowed down. Like they took their foot off the the gas here, and there, there's a certain degree for me where I'm like, are they almost intentionally lulling into? Like I have this note here of especially with some of the slice of life content, we have like Shinji smiling and being comfortable and like actually being a little bit bratty back to Misato sometimes. And I think especially the first time you watch this, it might be easier to read this as just like, Oh, like, you know, Shinji was kind of sad, but now is like found a bit of a family and is like doing a little bit better. And yet, you know, spoilers, if you haven't watched Ava and you're watching along with us, like, this is the happiest the series is ever going to be. <laughs> um, yeah. And there's a certain amount of, like, is this actual, genuine, like, Shinji is happy, blah, blah, blah? Or is this that, like, illusion of happiness that you create when you're depressed so that people will just, like, stop questioning why you're sad all the time? Which is a thing that, like, hits me profoundly hard because, especially when one of the things that you're depressed about is just, like 
being trans and not even knowing that and understanding it yourself, you get like incredibly good at projecting this idea of like, I'm happy and I'm successful and I can like buckle down and do the work and I can like hang out and laugh with friends. And you get incredibly good at building this like mask that you're just wearing all the time. And inside you're still like in this state of turmoil. Um, And I, knowing the series as a whole, that's what I'm reading into a lot of these episodes. But I think it would be very easy to just watch them. Like if you had someone watch just these episodes, they'd just be like, oh, like this is, it's like fun. They're, you know. This is almost a normal anime. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, um, I think your comments are in many ways, a perfect summary of like, of of what I agree is happening in these, in these episodes. There is a lot of the like foregrounded content is this like slice of life stuff. Obviously Asuka enters into the picture and the, these relationships between like Shinji and Asuka and Misato and Rei like become a little bit more uh, foregrounded and you get to just like sit with them for a little while and, and that there is this illusion of like familial, you know, like some sort of like pseudo familial thing happening that is gestured at. Um, yeah. Like I, I forget when it happened. I think there's, I, f- I think it's in these episodes. I believe, I don't remember exactly when it happens, but like Shinji returns home and no one's home and he's just like, Tadaima and like, going around and being like, oh, I guess no one's home. Um, and again, I don't like remember when that moment happened, but it is like in clear contrast to what the whole Tadaima Okairi that we talked about with like episodes. Uh, I forget which ones those really come up in, but like, you know, episodes, the previous yeah, episode. like yeah. three and four. Um, I think in particular is one that was like a key thing. And again, I like didn't, note it in my notes here but i remember it happening uh so but, but I then think... again like I, I don't know if that changes still our like i don't think it changes our read of like tadaima is a expectation that's being put on shinji of like oh you are supposed to view this as home and that like is it actually this happy thing that now he's doing that or is it just him falling into like this routine that is being expected of him as this pilot um yeah, and and to to like to really just state explicitly like what I think is happening. Um, I think a, a lot of the these like a lot of these themes that we were addressing last episode, a lot of the very very dark. I mean, I'll just say like tortured subtext, uh, thematic subtext of the series. It it's not suspended. It recedes into the background. And there is a very, um, again, I'll, I'll just like totally overuse this word tonight because it's appropriate, but there's a very dark tonal like play here that happens sometimes in Ava where it almost like grotesquely foregrounds certain like, whether it's, you know, a gesture at like a slice of life comedy or like a teen coming of age comedy it will foreground these kinds of like tropes and elements just enough for you to like touch. But then in the background, it, it you have like 
all of this other stuff still looming over you that it, it's palpable. I mean, if you pay attention, you can see it. Um, but even if you don't, it's like, it's kind of palpable that there's a malaise that like is kind of erupting from underneath. Uh, even as like we're presented with this kind of, oh, it's, you know, a tonal shift and now it's, you know, this lighter like stuff about Asuka and Shinji fooling around and like everyone just finding some like some small like sphere of peace uh, in this situation. And uh, yeah, I, I regret to inform you if um, if you are watching this for the first time, like this is the setup to make the like pummeling that is to come it even more like i mean it sets the stage for it um yeah. it's necessary like i think in many ways to mark to like mark out or highlight some of the themes that are developed but it, it does make it this in its own way is quite brutal i feel like yeah and especially in retrospect in like a way that i Again, I don't know if you pick up on the very first time that you watch the series, but then you watch it again and you're like, oh, wow, this <laughs> like this is this is contributing to it in part because it is providing a contrast that is going to be like directly drawn out as the series continues and that will also then like continue to frame the beginning as well. So anyway, and, uh- I. I know we have on, like you have lots of things about this episode, so I want to like yeah, <laughs> like on that point, I'm just gonna run like through some observations that that I had uh, like specifically along these lines. Um, we see at the very start of this episode some views of Gendo. Um, again, I don't think that's coincidental. Um, he, in many ways, is this like figure that looms over and or as we know you know he orchestrates we're constantly reminded that he's orchestrating everything in shinji's life and you know and everyone who works at nerve so you know we're kind of like presented with him alone in his citadel with his blank eyes like manipulating events this is one of like if you pay attention to the way that gendo is presented I think we'll talk a lot more like later on about Gendo's character. Spoiler alert. Uh, I think Gendo, my read is that Gendo is the antagonist in this series. And again, you know, he's this kind of like, if you're watching it for the first time, I think you can maybe not pick up on that right away, but watching it through now, it's just like the way that he's being presented is this like, looming presence um, who is like in many ways the darkness behind all of this stuff um yeah i also think like misato's drinking is presented again here i don't know why it struck me this time but i just had a moment when i was watching this episode where i was like is this still funny because it's kind of like is this even the episode where she's like drinking in the morning and just being like, Oh, like blah, 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 a commoner's breakfast or whatever with like sake. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah. And it's like played for laughs, but 
is it really funny? So there's a very subtle like, hmm, this is is maybe not such a good thing. We also see just, I think we see a lot about Masato uh, in this episode as well. Specifically, we see like this division within her. We can like talk about her drinking as part of this. Um, I think it, it is part of it. But also just these two roles that we kind of talked about last time between her like this warm, playful, like quote unquote messy demeanor to like this clinical, cold, uh, like super competent, you know, secret agent wherein she's like admitting, you know, that her, that her like whole motherly relation to Shinji is like part of her job. Um, yeah. And there's also the, like, at the end, there's the whole comment of, like, Shinji's kind of complaining about, like, sh- you know, Misato's such a mess- messy bitch, basically. And then Kensuke's like, that's a good thing, because she's being like, if you can't take me at my messy bitch, you don't deserve me at my, like, uh, put-together hot girl getting out of the car or whatever. Um, and there's a certain amount of just, like, is that what that means? Like... <laughs> yeah yeah i say i I say fully as like a gay messy bitch right now but uh Uh, kensuke you don't know shit um so i will say like i think maybe in the last episode i articulated this like my read on this in a certain way i think that misato's like her let's just say like playful demeanor i do think it's utilized I think she utilizes it for like a specific purpose, but I don't think it's fake, right? Yeah. Like I think these two sides of her are both like actually Misato and the point of her character is that and one of I guess this is tying into like my overall thing about Ava, but the point of her character is that she is like divided within herself and that the like both of these things and the tension between them like exist within her yeah i think she's also like i i'm saying this to you as someone who made numerous jokes last episode about me being misato but also being a like when i read the manga now when i'm watching this show like the character that in many ways i'm identifying with the most is misato and some of that is that i'm no longer a teen like if i was you know when i first watched this it was probably shinji and also ray in a way that i probably wouldn't have wanted to admit at the time whereas now i watch it and i'm identifying especially in the show i think with misato like ritsuko is just too like overtly cold and calculating throughout a lot of this for me to really um like i i need to remember because i'm still working through the manga as well i feel like the manga develops ritsuko a little bit more as a character but um like in the show in general just not to this degree so far but like the this whole tangent is like there's a distinction between me being like a messy disaster lesbian right now and then like the way that Misato is not just like this, you know, messy millennial, you know, 
woman who is just like getting drunk and being depressed and blah 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 but like the way that that also then gets weaponized in some ways against Shinji that like the the Kensuke part kind of hits in this way too because it's like is it that she's comfortable and just opening up to you or is this like actually something that would be bordering on something abusive or something the like mm-hmm. environment that you're in like is is it getting to the point where she's like no longer actually being in any way a good guardian to you probably <laughs> which yeah. is like a distinction from my disaster lesbianness so <laughs> um like uh, like and i i want to like i think this is one of the things that becomes difficult about um we recorded the discussion bucket episode for ghost in the shell standalone complex like a thing that i kind of gestured at with some of that was other stuff around abuse, but I like a additional piece of context that I didn't bring up then is the way that on one hand, I believe that like people, I believe that people should have to be able to change that. Like we shouldn't be reduplicating punitive States or like carceral States in the way that we always handle abusive situations. And yet also that belief is a thing that abusive people can use and weaponize in order to like further be able to perpetrate abuse by being like, Oh, you shouldn't, you know, push me out of the space. Like my life shouldn't be ruined for this, but then never actually doing the work to like in any way address or improve what's happening or to like get better about what they're doing. Um, And I, I don't think like Misato is, extremely abusive to Shinji or anything. That's that's not what I'm saying here. But I think there is a certain amount of like you don't I again, I'm I'm rewatching this. It's been a while since we watched the show. Maybe I'll change my mind. In these episodes and I think in general, you don't really see Misato like actually trying to work on the problems that she has that are probably affecting the lives of those around her as well. And that is like an important distinction that is a thing I think needs to like be brought up as well when discussing this, because there's like nothing inherently wrong with being a messy bitch. And yet the way that Misato exists um, and the way that like she then treats Shinji and things are not okay just because like, Oh, I'm a messy bitch or whatever. Um, Yeah. So yeah, that's that's my like rough take here on Misato. <laughs> yeah, I think this is this might seem like a weird statement for me because last episode I did I, I feel like I I did a, a pretty harsh reading of Misato, but I actually feel that Misato is um I feel a lot of empathy for her character in because I don't think that I mean, it's like you said, Misato, there, there is some level of abuse towards Shinji that she's carrying out, but I think that that abuse is situated within the context of her being part of Nerve and Nerve being like the, the, an organizational perpetrator of abuse. Yeah. That is like mostly a reflection of Gendo. And the way that Misato identifies with Nerve and Gendo is because she does in in an, some uneven, like not a complete, but in some partial way. 
which becomes complicated like in, in these episodes and then after. But the extent to which she identifies with Nerve and by extension Gendo is deeply, like, I feel causally like embedded in the abuse that she carries out. And that's an overcomplicated way of just being like, yeah, like it's her job to like manage him. And like, even, you know, she's doing some consciously and perhaps some unconsciously, like trying to mold him and shape him into what Gendo wants and what will serve like the interest of the organization. But like she herself is in, in this kind of, precarious position because she's kind of there's a part of her that is like resisting this even if it never seems to win out the show like again and again shows at least some impulse even if it's like you know oh i'm just gonna voice subjection and drop it immediately there's this thing this impulse that marks her character of being like, I'm not fully aligned with Nerve in the way that like it seems that Ritsuko is. Like she's Ritsuko's like further along on that. Yeah. I think to like I know we'll get back to this, but just to like shift gears, the other thing that I, I wanted to point out about this episode is that the this continuing project of like portraying the world it, or, or let me walk that back of shrouding the world in mystery um, not so much portraying it but like showing the like gaps there is like some exposition here in this episode where it's like oh second impact you know blah 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 at fields but it's not it's all like presented in this totally disconnected fashion um, as like incidental comments and even like the framing of the second impact thing it's not enough for you to understand like what that is it's just enough to like hint to just to show you that you don't know anything (laughs) and like hint at this whole world of like machinations and like history that is outside of our knowledge yeah often this i feel like this show will like give you a bit of here's some more that's going on, but it's always like whatever they give you just raises further questions where you're like, oh, okay, there's like a meteor that hit earth and it melted all the ice caps and caused like global conflict and half the population died. Okay. And then they're like, well, actually it was an angel awaking and there was an explosion. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> 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 like explain. Um, <laughs> so, and then yeah. they're like, no, um, I don't know if you have other like specific thoughts or if we can move on to episode eight. Yeah. Uh, I think I I do have like uh, some further comments on that, on that point, but um, we can talk about it in the discussion of episode eight. Yeah. So episode eight, um, Misato essentially takes Shinji, Kensuke and Toji on a field trip uh, to a fleet of battleships to meet with Asuka and Unit 2 uh, as it's transported from Germany. Naturally, there is an angel attack. And, of course. Which totally, you know, 
really uh, unexplained. It's weird how the angels just keep attacking, like... Exactly where they are. Exactly where they are. I wonder if... I wonder if there's something behind that. Yeah. Um, it was trying to go after Unit 2. It, it knew that Unit 2 is being transported, right? That that must be it. Yeah. Which, like, that totally makes sense, since the angels are just, like, eldritch monsters. So, yeah. um... <laughs> uh, but anyway... Oscar goes out in Unit Two, and she dre- she basically like forces Shinji to come with her in the same cockpit so she can see, or so he can see how great she is. And, and instead of that happening, Ava Unit Two like because Unit Two doesn't have the correct gear for underwater combat, it just gets like basically eaten, and it it's like it's bitten like bait is like the conceit here. Um, yeah. With the power cord being like the the line attached to the battleship, it's just like fishing. <laughs> but um, just, um, but uh, so in order to like resolve this, frankly c- catastrophic situation, uh, Misato develops a, a wild plan to uh, purposely sink two battleships in tr- in uh, like. On the trajectory into the like angel's mouth, <laughs> the like ability to predict predict the trajectory of two battleships and have them sink like side by side directly down a line is just a level of like precision that I really believe the percentage chances that they keep giving of like oh this only has like a zero point zero zero. I'm like, yeah, it really does. But yeah, Gurren Lagann logic. <laughs> That'll make sense if we ever do Gurren Lagann or if you've already watched Gurren Lagann. So yeah, so following the Gurren Lagann logic, this whole scheme works perfectly. Uh, the angel is destroyed and Misato and uh, Shinji and Asuka, you know, glory in their triumph. And then we have this immediate like cut at the very end of the episode to this immensely creepy scene with Kaji and Gendo, uh, where Kaji gives a briefcase to Gendo. Uh, Gendo opens it, or I can't remember if, I, th- I think he, yeah, I think he actually opens it. And it is, yeah, we see like the weird embryo thing inside. Yeah. It's a weird embryo thing. And they refer to it as the first human Adam. And then episode end, so a very, uh, you know, cheery way to end this triumphant episode. Yeah, this um, nice slice of life stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with no, uh, no creeping malaise whatsoever. Um, we, uh, important, important thing that happens, obviously, we just referred to Kaji. Kaji comes in in this episode. I, I have a read of Kaji where I'm like, I think... Kaji's character is obviously a certain like type of trope that is being deployed. Um, but I think in my overall read of Ava, it is a trope that is being deployed critically. Um, and there's a, a quite a bit of darkness in this character, but we can flesh that out as we go. I know you have some thoughts too. Yeah. I don't know. Like some of it is some of my thought, like I have thoughts about, Asuka and I have thoughts about like Misato and Kaji, but also they are <clears throat> thoughts that for me, I'm 
more interested in talking about when we like bring up some additional stuff that happens in the next episode, episode mm-hmm. nine, just because any, like even some of the stuff that happens beyond that. But I think especially when we get to episode nine, there's like one key scene that I want to draw out to talk about it. So again, I don't know if we want to like start diving into it now or if it's fine for us to just save it for next time. I, well, I do have a like, I have a somewhat complicated read of Misato and Kaji and what's going on with like Asuka and everything, but I think like might go slightly beyond some of the common takes on it that I see. But yeah, like I guess just to pivot, unless you like really want to start hitting things right now, is just this. Uh, I'm going to describe the monsters. This is I, you know, you. I'm going to give you the names. You can Google them if you want to see them. So Gagiel, I think, is how you would say this one. Uh, it's like this stingray shark type thing. Also, there's definitely a few shots of it that are like vaguely vaginal. So, you know, we got the phallic angel last time. Here we have like the Yonic version. Um, yeah, otherwise, like this is one where... Like, I was also laughing to you about the manga because of how even a lot of this episode gets excised. Um, but one thing I think that is, like, significant about the way that they do it is in the manga, Asuka and all of this happens and, like, Shinji and everybody is not there. They meet Asuka after the fact. Um, they actually meet her in the streets of Japan and then later Shinji's like, whoa, this, like, brash girl that I saw on the street who's you know kind of a jerk is actually the new Ava pilot and I think there's some interesting things that happen in this episode but one thing that I kind of like about that approach is we hear often in the show that like Asuka is supposed to be some sort of wonderkin and I feel like we often don't see it Really, it's like Shinji is the big special one. And so many of Asuka's moments to like potentially shine in any way, like even the moment of trying to open the fish's mouth after like failing or, you know, the angel fish's mouth is still like and then Shinji is like in her lap and also doing the thing and they're like doing it in unison and that's how they they're able to get the mouth open. And so, so many of the stuff that even could be some sort of like here's Asuka showing some sort of capability is like always subjugated to Shinji, which I think is in some way playing with like the mecha anime trope of the protagonist boy. But from my perspective of like, I want to be able to actually enjoy, like I want these to be characters that I don't just like, but that also the, the like thing that I am reading or watching actually seems to like, I just, I feel like Ano hates women too much or something to like let Asuka just sometimes succeed on her own <laughs> or I don't know what it is or is just like not even like is like so wrapped up into here's my view of Shinji or whatever and this is all about Shinji and I just feel like there's more space for other characters to be able to like do things outside of the framework of Shinji as a character. Um, which is just a like a different tone, but it's one that works better for me. I'm not saying that like necessarily the show is bad. I think having a show that's about a self-absorbed, depressed boy is like also a true modality of things that exist in the world. But um, in terms of like 
like this is one of the reasons why I like the manga better is just that the female characters get to be more human than I think sometimes the show allows them to be. So that's my like my little take here. Um, I know we talked about not talking about the manga too much, but like this is one where it really stands out to me and I think is the the only place I'm going to like really pull it out this episode. Um, Oh, I mean, it's it's honestly like I'm told that you could both talk about the manga. Um, I have now like I'm reading it as well. And I think in some ways, like it has sharpened my like the contrast has sharpened my original reading um of like what i think the series is going for and like doing uniquely um i think it's like it's it's intriguing in like it's intriguing and like amusing how much our readings diverge on the point of like ano (laughs) um and like what is being done i think so, well, let me let me pause and say, like, part of the challenge of doing this series for me is that I have, like, I have so many, like, comments on, like, here's my unified theory of Ava that need to, like, that I want to bring up, like, later because it will only make sense. The most appropriate time is to, like, talk about it in like end of Evangelion and towards the end of the series when we have all of this material to like work with, but there's like a tension between like, Oh, I'm holding this back uh, because I'm not like ready to, to just totally go into it fully or it would just be like, I mean, it would just be too much before you get there. But anyway, I think my, I actually think the reading, the way that Asuka is presented is quite empathetic and her like some of the main things that are happening with her character here is like yes this relationship with Shinji which becomes like a major like fulcrum for like the overall thematic project of the series which I think like ultimately Shinji and Asuka and all the other characters are just like are subordinate to or just like figures in. But I also think like the way that Asuka is presented, like like the presentation of the other characters, it like really fleshes out the internal division uh like of her um and the roles her struggle with like her sense of identity um in relation to like everyone else and the expectations of her and so on and so forth, which I think is really strongly brought out in episode nine. But this relationship that she has with Shinji is like, to me, I see how like it, you can read it as like, Oh, Asuka is subordinated to Shinji. And in some ways the like mechanism, like the mechanics of it kind of come off like that. But in my like overall read of what the series is doing, I think it's like this relationship is just a figure for like, humanity like fundamentally and how we are like divided from each other fundamentally but like have to struggle with that and somehow like need each other uh in this terminal state of like need and also like division 
Yeah, I think like one of the big things for me is I don't know, I'll, I'll talk more about my read on Asuka in a little bit, but especially like around this part is I think like the manga still has Asuka as a character who is insecure about her relation um, and especially like her quote unquote rivalry with Shinji. And I think that that insecurity plays better for me if we still get moments where we get to see her be capable and yet she is still like trying to one up and compare herself with Shinji. Whereas I don't know, like the show like why I say that her stuff gets like subjugated or like subordinated to his stuff is just that like literally all of her successes are in some way still tied up with like Shinji always being better than her in like a literal factual way and not a thing that is a, a like a part of how she's viewing the world. And I feel like in the manga, it is easier to see her as someone who is also like highly capable and yet is still having these insecurities and that those insecurities are like, are, are more genuinely coming from within and not like a thing that is externally manifested in the way that the show continues to like always have Shinji actually literally one up her in all of the fight scenes that we'll see, uh, at least in these episodes. Yeah, I, I see your point. It's, I think the main divergence is that I don't, I don't think that Shinji is like overall or, or even like, definitively like in within in relation to asuka like presented as being all that capable (laughs) um i like my read on the way shinji is presented is as someone who is like in many ways um like we've already seen his like failures and incapability like they were foregrounded heavily and here it's like all of his successes by the same token are like equally you know he involve asuka right like he insofar as asuka like needs shinji to like beat the whatever like i don't think it's necessarily like implied that shinji can do this on his own you know what i mean yeah um and then there's other things about like where the slice of life stuff comes into play where it's like, Oh, like Asuka, you know, like this math that I don't understand. And maybe I like the only reason that you get bad grades is because of like X, Y, and Z. But there, there are details there that like feel to me, like very deliberate. Although I, I will say, I feel like, I feel like Ray is often presented as like she's a character where I see this like this character is clearly more capable and like knowledgeable and in the like triangulation of those three I see that but for yeah. me I, I just see Shinji as so like so like broken and incapable as like his definitive feature but you know we'll uh we'll see <laughs> As we go, like, because there's a lot more Asuka and Shinji, like, stuff going on. Yeah, I, like, for me to come in, direct things, 
this might be a good time to talk about gender happening. Asuka puts Shinji in one of her plug suits, which of course has like, uh, the, the plug suits are designed to be like skin tight. Like they like suction up onto the body or whatever, when they push a button. Um, and yet still has like noticeable breasts, even on Shinji. So I don't know exactly what's going on there, Um, (laughs) but yeah, definitely some gender happening here. Uh, definitely like, this emasculation of Shinji. Um, I'll have, again, additional thoughts on some of this and how it's like figuring in with Asuka, but definitely something worth calling out. And then also kind of the way that we also get this moment of Asuka changing and throughout it, she's been like basically flaunting or like flirting with some level of sexuality around these boys and then now when she's changing it's just like oh like why is shinji trying to peek all boys are perverts like blah 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 um which i'm not saying in terms of like let's let shame asuka for like asking for attention and then in this moment being like okay but please don't look at me naked because actually you can do that and people still shouldn't look at you naked but i do think that there is like this specific tension too of asuka of like I don't know. Again, I'm touching on stuff that I want to get into when we talk a little bit more about next episode. Um, But there's definitely like this playing at sexuality and sexual repression that is happening um, that I think is going to get developed further. And we, we definitely get some strong hits of it here. Um, Yeah. I, um, it, I don't want to just like drag you into like making into like, what are what are things that you want to talk about with episode eight before we talk about Asuka and also Kaji and Misato? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, let me let me just like put it out. What do you need to like talk about right now before we get into that? <laughs> it's all of my comments are like bearing on this. <laughs> Let's do episode nine. Let's just do. So I'm gonna do my throw to episode nine. Um, so this is one thing that's gonna like f- fully figure into my read here is during the like post credits next time on for uh episode eight we get asuka not misato being the one promising fan service this time um and this is pointing towards this read that i'm gonna have but we'll we'll get into episode nine but this like read that is why i have previously brought up this essay about misara hibari and the girl star in post-war japanese cinema so episode nine Basically, an angel with, like, a Taiji 2 core, which that's what it's called. It's not called a yin-yang. The symbol is a separate and different thing that is separate and distinct from the concept of yin and yang. It represents, like, a more complex uh, representation of the various interactions. It is not just yin and yang. It is also the wu. Anyway, the angel has a Taiji 2 core and uh, can split into separate bodies and then has, like, two cores. Um, The Taiji 2 being the, like classic swirled thing uh symbol that like people associate with yin and yang and initial attempts to defeat it fail uh they basically like conclude that they have to be defeated with like both cores fused together and hit at the same time and after the initial failure the you know the fight happens between this angel and then units one and two and of course shinji and asuka as pilots and they're like arguing over whose fault it was and so nervous like 
what you need to do is learn how to act as a team. And the plan that is devised is that they're going to learn a synchronized dance using some sort of weird fusion of like Twister and DDR. (laughs) And of course, while wearing the same dance outfit. So we like get this repetition of the dance outfit is like a little bit less like this has tits than the plug suit that Asuka, you know, put Shinji in last time, but it is still like, it is at least an outfit that is like very like gay in the high school kids who do like theater vibe. It it is like a little bit veering in towards that direction. Um, it is something that like Oscar's wearing an identical outfit, uh, so it's like and it's like definitely gearing a little bit more towards like a, a feminine appearance. Yeah, it has like very, if I'm remembering right, it has like very wide shoulders. And yeah, so like the shoulders are exposed. And, and it's like drapes and like kind of reveals the midriff to some extent. And isn't um, there like an undershirt that is like, you can't see the undershirt, but you can see the straps. So it looks like a bra. Am I just yeah. like imagining this? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it's definitely like, it is intentional, I think, on the show's part to to have it be like a slightly more effeminate outfit, even if it has, even as it is something that like, a guy could conceivably wear while doing like practices for dancing. And, you know, in addition to wearing the same outfit and doing this, like practicing the synchronized dance, they're also sleeping in the same room, like doing everything together. It's like, you have to do everything in unison because you're going to have to fight together. And we get various scenes kind of around, like here they are training. Here's the like days going down because they hit the angel with an N2 bomb that like slowed it down for like a week or whatever. So they can learn this dance. And then we'll have a sleep one night. Uh, Asuka, uh, this is actually like a particularly funny or like interesting scene because Asuka talks about the impenetrable wall of Gibraltar being like, oh, Misato's gone. I'm going to go sleep in the the other room. I'm going to like slam this closed. And of course, the whole thing with the wall of Gibraltar is that it was penetrated, that like the battle of Gibraltar ended with it falling. That's the whole thing. That's... Jericho. Or yeah, the wall of Jericho. Oh my God. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. They they crossed over from Africa to Europe. Yeah. It was penetrated. Um, I don't know what brain fart I had going on. (laughs) But anyway. um, Yeah. While while have a sleep one night, Asuka leaves from the impenetrable wall of Jericho and goes to the bathroom and then like have a sleep lays down directly next to Shinji on the floor. Shinji's basically contemplating kissing her, like getting very close to doing it. Um, And then she murmurs mama and Shinji like stops and, you know, remarks like, Oh, you're just a child yourself because throughout this Asuka has been like making comments about him. And then the, the choreographed attack goes off and it's successful. Uh, It's like set to this, classical piece and the angel is defeated but of course shinji and asuka flub the landing and immediately begin blaming each other for like you you know messed up the the landing here um so it's like this is an episode that often gets called out as being like a particularly fun episode of the show and i think it is although there's also a lot going on here um including i kind of i didn't talk about it but it starts out with 
Kensuke and Toji taking these photos of Asuka as like a school idol almost where it's like, oh, here are, here's her drinking water. Here's like her getting changed in a room from like across the courtyard or whatever. Um, Oh, also my description here of Israfel. So it like breaks into two, but it kind of looks like if you ever like buy one of those bendy toys from like a capsule machine that will be like outside of a restaurant or something sometimes, um, or like outside of a Walmart or whatever, and you can like kind of bend it so the like arms go forward into like an arc shape. Uh, it really reminds me of that. Um, <laughs> it is not one of my favorite designs, despite the fact that I am Taoist and it does have a Taiji too. So, um, yeah, but anyway, I I think the like I have other comments here that we can get to, but we've we keep dancing around it and I just want to get right into like here's my read specifically looking at like here's Misori uh, Misora Hibari, who was this girl star who, as a small girl, was a impersonator of adult women. Um, and so she would impersonate the acts of adult women and specifically of adult women who were involved in the scene that was basically strongly like... Like, they were doing, like, boogie-woogie. They were doing this, like, kind of jazz-inflected sound that was coming from the U.S. occupation that was happening after World War II. And uh, it was specifically, like, a lot of songs that were about sexuality in some way. I'm I'm just, like, quick double-checking the name to make sure that I have um, the Kasutori culture was what it was. So... And that, like, Kasutori is also specifically referring to bootleg liquor that was happening at the time and uh, was also, like, directly tied to Nikutai Bungaku, which is, like, literature of the flesh. This Nikutai in particular was a really key word for, like, Kasutori as a culture, and it is specifically flesh in the, like, sexual, sensual sense um, and not in these, like, other, um, you know... Yeah, like those kinds of, or just like stuff of like, oh, like surgery, like that's, it's not like the flesh in that sense either. So, and Misori Hibari was, uh, especially when she was very little, was an incredibly good impersonator. Some of it was that, um, one, she just like had impressive control uh like she was a, an impressive singer she had good control she had good like stage presence and she also had an unusually deep voice for her age and so she could also uh really easily accomplish this kind of like older female crooner style uh despite being like 10 years old and this act was kind of scandalous in japan in particular because of the ways that it was tied to some of the stuff I was talking about in last episode around the way that like Japan legalized teenage, like teenage girls being sex workers in order to try to address the issues that were happening with American GIs and the widespread rape and assault that was happening during the occupation. And this is a very like fraught and difficult issue to talk about. And I say all of this being like a person who is fundamentally pro sex work in terms of like, how do we, how do we think about it and how do we like support people who are doing this work and how do we contextualize it? Um, a thing I didn't like really get to last episode that I want to put here now that I'm slightly more clear headed and like focused on what I wanted to actually be able to say is like, I, I think any understanding of like the exploitation that's inherent to sex work 
needs to come with it like an understanding that it is not inherently more exploitative than other ways that bodies are exploited for systems of like labor and power and that in fact like if you compare it to something like the coal industry or oil industries where often they will move into these impoverished communities offer decent wages not even like great wages but decent for that community to have people work in a coal mine and then in the process destroy the the health and the bodies not only of those working in the mines but often the community itself cause significant environmental damage and then basically leave these communities high and dry as soon as they've like sucked all the resources from the land and from the people and that is a a extremely deeply exploitative practice and so many people who will like the conservative point of view is coal is good and sex work is bad and that's like does not at all understand what's happening with the exploitation of bodies under like systems of labor and these powers that happen with under capitalism uh, or like these powers, power systems that happen under capitalism. And then in fact, there are like are other ways that sex work can exist that are not exploitative. And so like, that's what being pro sex work is about is like figuring out how do you support those other forms um, that don't lean into this stuff. Uh, I want to like just pre preface this because I am against like, I'm talking about the fraught nature of the way that sex work and especially sex work involving young girls occurred in Japan and how I think that figures into a continuing history of how Japan sexualizes young girls and how that sexualization within anime one is geared towards like presumed young male audiences in Japan, but I think also increasingly as well, like as American interest in anime has grown, I think also anime has appeal to it as specifically like a western taste that is interested in like otaku culture um in a way that it is like very messy and and needs to be reckoned with i think and it's something that like i'm sure i'm going to continue to talk about on this show because we're going to continue to watch shows where like young girls are sexualized because this is a lot of anime and especially a lot of anime that makes it to the west but i i think especially with asuka like i'm excited that we get to I don't know if excited is the right word, but I'm I'm like, Asuka is a very good case to look at because of how much, I do not know if it is intentional, but there is so much that actually maps onto Misori Hibari in terms of what is going on with Asuka, um, which includes one, there are these tones of war, which were also like a an important part of what was going on with Misori Hibari. Um, there's also these tones, like Asuka is like explicitly mixed race, which Misori Hibari is believed to have potentially been like a Korean minority and was kind of hiding it in order to be able to achieve stardom. And also that this Kasatori culture was like linked again to jazz, to boogie woogie, to these like Western influences on Japan. Um, this like American jazz music and American culture, that's what it was linked to. And so a lot of that stuff is happening in addition to here is Asuka as like this character who is, I think, explicitly being set up as a female impersonator and is being set up as a female impersonator of Misato. That we get in the next time on for episode eight, here is Asuka saying, and I'll have plenty of fan service for you in the exact same way that Misato was. In the scene where we see Shinji contemplating kissing Asuka, it then cuts to here's Kaji kissing Misato and this like kind of creepy exchange of 
you're saying no, but your lips are saying yes. Like, mm-hmm. which should I believe? And like, they are very, very clearly drawing these parallels of like, here's the relationship between Kaji and Misato. Here is this like budding relationship that could exist between Shinji and Asuka. And that there are like parallels and cycles happening. And that so much of like, we will get throughout this. I think like possibly in the next episode, there's a moment where, you know, they're having a party and Ritsuko shows up with Kaji like late to the party. And then both Asuka and Misato are jealous. Asuka has this like obsession with Kaji in this way that again, feels very tied into like this idea almost of trying to figure out when you are a teen, like what does it mean to be an adult? And you do it by like impersonating adults in ways where you like, in some ways are almost faking it until you make it. And we often get this tension of Asuka, like trying to, be like Misato while at the same time then like rejecting when that actually results in especially boys her own age like responding to that with advances um that are like suggesting some sort of not actual readiness to access this even as she is like trying to because she thinks it is what is expected of her um and another thing that happens here that I think is really significant is we talked in our previous episode about all these times where Misato is like, Shinji, you're a man, aren't you? I thought you were a man, blah, blah, blah. And in this episode, we have Asuka saying it, and we specifically have a scene where Asuka is saying it, and then also drinking from a can, which is presumably a soda, but is also evoking the way that we so often see Misato holding a can of beer. Um, And so, like, it is, you know, they're having this whole thing of like, oh, matchy matchy, here's like Shinji and Asuka, and they are the ones who are supposed to be like synchronizing themselves. And yet also in this episode, we really explicitly start seeing Asuka synchronizing herself to Misato in these ways that I don't think are are unintentional. And that again, I think there are so many like parallels that I can then also draw to Misori Hibari here is this like figure that existed that is a, a very important, like very influential, well-known girl star in Japan to such an extent where I would not be surprised if some of this is even intentionally gesturing towards her of like, this is a, a, a thing that was very complex and was like a fraught battleground for what does it mean for Japan to be be occupied by the U.S. What does that mean for like their sense of national identity, for their sense of culture, and specifically how those things become battlegrounds around young women? And now we have a series that seems to be in some ways responding to like the end of the Cold War and how do we how do we reframe that same battleground? But now it's happening with like a different set of you know, here it's happening again with Asuka and it's happening within this new context. And so I don't have like a full final, like, and then here's my super clear take. But I think like, this is my read on Asuka and why, even as I'm still sometimes uncomfortable with the way that they are sexualizing Asuka, where I can see that they're, they are trying to do something interesting as well. Um, Because I think it is actually, I see enough where I feel like it can be a part of a true lineage of the way that like, young girls and both the sexualization of them as well as the like desire to make them chaste and non-sexualized in a way that is also still highly charged as like a political national thing 
that that is kind of playing out in this series that like in some ways the which is the like waifu or who's the best girl or whatever asuka and ray is also like ray is in many ways more clearly the like typical ideal of a young woman that like misora hibari moved into when she took her when she like made her jump to film and tried to shake off a lot of the previous associations with this like impersonation of sexualized adult women so part of this is just like if you're if you are listening to this please seek out and read Deborah Shimun, Masaru Hibari, and the girl star in post-war Japanese cinema. Um, it, it like continues to be a really important essay for me in just understanding and like contextualizing what is the sexualization of young girls in a lot of Japanese media that we see and how is it part of like a broader system of um, especially American military hegemony in Japan. And uh, how do those like how does the portrayal of both the sexualized young girl as well as like the chaste pure young girl how are those actually both fraught and like neither of them allow for like the true completeness of the humanity of like young women so that's my big rant i'm gonna throw it to you now connor <laughs> yeah i think um i mean there's so much i i often find myself like <laughs> saying this um it's gonna become a running joke but like there's so much to respond to there I think the the thing is you will start talking and I will jump in when I have a point and you'll just sit and like have them build up because you're too much of a podcast bottom. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, no, I just, uh, well, sh- yeah, I'll accept that. But also um, when, when you go on your, your like long explications, um, I think that often it, it helps me organize my thoughts as well. So in the first instance, like, I think, like, A, that is essential context, uh, obviously. Um, B, I think you draw out some of the, like, important dynamics that are occurring with Asuka's character right away. Especially the, like, I agree, there is an analogy that is drawn between her and Misato. Um, and then also with that, like, graphic match cut um, between Kaji and Misato and then Shinji in Asuka. Yeah. The only thing that I would that I would add immediately to what you said is you described Asuka as being caught between you know her the fact that she is like essentially like in many ways a child and then also this sense of what she is supposed to be. Um if I'm re- remembering right. Yeah, um, like the Yeah, this like she so one of the things that also kind of like the the essay I'm pointing towards draws out too is that like also if you can look at Shirley Temple, which is a, a thing that a lot of listeners might be more familiar with than Misara Hibari. Um I think I am gonna like link into the work cited um a video of one of the it's in a film, so it's like less overtly sexualized than a lot of her off like her stage performances that were off screen. But in her first movie, uh, there's a part where she does a song and dance where she's like dressed in a top hat and suit. So instead of it being like a adult female outfit, she's like taking on almost this like Fred Astaire kind of look. But then also at one point, like 
does a dance with one of the adult women who's in the room during the scene. And what's happening in the film is like the, the film is actively trying to take that previous history that she has and is trying to, um, like, like or reverse it or yeah. Like, or like, or like ex- contextualize it in a way where they can then move past it and like, let it go where it's like, Oh, Yes, it's the sexualized song, but it's a song that her older brother wrote. And so when she's singing about the longing in the movie, it's not about a longing to like have sex with a woman. It's a longing to like find her long lost brother again. And then that she performs the song, the brother hears it and knows that it's his song and like gets reunited with her. Um, And so they like try to contextualize it in this way that desexes it in some way. And yet still it is a thing where like, especially if you are a queer person, like, me you're like oh this is like a little drag king who is like singing a song and dancing around with an adult woman um like they're still they are trying to desex it and yet they still have to like point towards some of what happened and specifically some of it was because she was getting older and and part of like one of the things that happened with shirley temple as well is that like her act was also somewhat sexualized and became less sexualized as she started to move into teendom and this the the essay kind of posits that like, especially as girls then move into where they are starting to reach to adulthood, that's where, like, the importance to maintain that purity strengthens within culture. And some of it is, like, weird and pedophilic that, like, we d- that that doesn't happen earlier on, but some of it is also, like, specifically this battleground of, like, when this person is now actually being viewed in many ways as, like, someone who's developing as a sexual being, then we need to, like, maintain their purity until they can be, like, married or whatever it is. And so, specifically having it be, here's Asuka who's, like, going through puberty, who, you know, in the next episode is going to be having a joke about like thermal expansion. If I put my hands on my boobs, do you think they'll get bigger? Um, that is specifically a thing pointing towards like she is developing and going through puberty. And this is specifically then like taking it from like a, a literal child who is doing this impersonation to, it is now like the stage of teen dumb where you are trying to do these things because you're trying to figure out like, I think so much of a teen is being like, okay, like I'm going to have to be an adult now, but I don't actually know what that means or what that is. And then you're like trying to figure out what that means. And Asuka is very much doing it in this like, oh, I'm looking at people like Misato and I'm trying to like emulate that in some way. So yeah, I went on another tangent, but this is like (laughs) what you were saying. I, I think it is like, it is specifically around for me, like Asuka's impersonation stuff is going around this like this is a potential expectation for me as a woman in society that i am like uh, a sexual being and i'm trying to figure out what that means which is contrasted with like what's happening with ray which is so much more of like i am meant to be like i am meant to be a wife that is like in the sense of like specifically a person who is like domestic and to use a very gross word owned by like the man or whatever which i think like as we go on and as we see ray develop some of that stuff gets played out with ray so it is this like it is that contrast of these these two different expectations that society often has for women of like the you know the 
the virgin and then the like slut or whore. Um, and those are like the two ways that you are allowed to be as a young woman often in society, which really um, I, I will let you talk. But I feel like sometimes I'm like caught between is Anno just trying to like portray this is just like the shittiness of society or does like Anno also buy into it sometimes? So, <laughs> so OK, yeah. So I'm just going to like show my hand like fully here because I just think this is a compelling conversation and like we we might as well like <laughs> put all our cards on the table here. So the one thing I would add to this like equation, um, which I think like is implied in what you said, but I just want to like bring it out. So Asuka, I told the agree is we see her, the way she's presented is like being caught between, you know, she is like a child in these ways um, and then also like bearing the weight of expectation or like, you know, this idea of what she's supposed to be. Um, another thing that is at play and I think is important to like articulate is like a real, a, a sense of Asuka's want as well. Like, I'm not going to say like, and this is actually my point, like, I don't think it's possible to say, and I certainly would not presume to, this is what Asuka wants. But part of this equation that, like, Asuka is struggling with is, like, yes, like, this expectation. Yes, like, I am literally, like, embodied in this, like, this, like, pubescent body that is, like, on the, like, precipice or is in this liminal state or whatever of being, like, a child and then kind of becoming an adult. But also, like, Asuka wants things as well, right? Like, there's some desire or, like, want that, again, I'm not going to just, like, say this is it. But I think that is apparent, that that is part of the equation as well. There's some, like, I I don't think she's just entirely, like, subject or defined by, subject to or defined by, like, this is, you know, like what I'm supposed to be, there's also some sense of, like, her desire, right? Like, her affection for, like, Kaji or whatever. Whether or not that is, like... Again, and I have a very, like, critical reading of Kaji. I don't think Kaji is good. So whether or not that is, like, a thing that I, you know, I want to see realized, which, like, no. It's also, like, Asuka has these desires and these wants, um, that are also coming into play here. Um, yeah. And as for like showing and, my And hand, also like there's a certain subversion that is happening or like inversion that is happening that on one hand you can read as like, oh, the show thinks it's totally fine when like Misato hits on Shinji, but not if it happens that like with the genders reversed. But this show has been so intentional about setting up those parallels that I, I think it is like an actual commentary of like, Oh, within these shows, we actually like often don't question it. I mean, I do because I look at it and I'm like, (laughs) Shinji's a literal child. What the fuck are you doing? Misato. But like within the tropes of so much of shonen anime, like, Oh, here's the hot older woman. Um, like fully coolie is just this sort of, (laughs) (laughs) right. And I love fully coolie, but also it's like, kind of fucked they just up. stretch it yeah they just yeah. like stretch it almost um, 
uncritically like as a as a bit yeah but like here i i think there is to some degree an intentional parallel that is being made with like them being aware that audiences and like even potentially the like target younger male audiences would question more like oh if kaji was doing something with asuka that feels more wrong and then by drawing out that parallel with like what's happening with shinji and misato being like okay but like all of this is kind of fucked up but again there's a part of me that's like like i'm gonna do like my quick take with like kaji and misato I watch like some of those scenes and on one hand I'm like this is like very gross and bad and like again we we talked about the whole Kaji kissing Misato and being like your you know your words are saying no but your lips are saying yes like which one should I you know believe or trust here and there's just so much of like the the very intro of Kaji is like Kaji playing footsie with Misato and Misato being like ugh about it basically well, I think it's it's him like hitting on Ritsuko, right? Well, it's the well, yeah. thing. And there's then a part he's, like. Well, yeah. There's also a part where Kaji's like playing footsie with Misato under the table when they're on the battleship. Even like we get like a very brief shot of it and Misato being like, "What are you doing around kids?" Or you know, "Why are you doing this around kids?" Basically, but yeah, and then like the stuff with Ritsuko hitting it, and then you get like Misato breathing hard against the window all of these kinds of things and all of this is to say that i could see a version of this written by like me and my friends where like there's a certain amount to which i hit on people like this but like it is intentionally consensual but that i am like specifically teasing them and doing these things where it is like the expected reaction that when they are teasing me that they are expecting from me is for me to like be flustered or be like, why are you doing this? And that's also the reverse that like, that's what I'm expecting. And it's like, it is an agreed upon dynamic of how, like, this is what being a brat is. I'm a brat. <laughs> this is like what, what flirting as a brat is. And so there's a version of like Kaji and Misato that is just like, yeah, this is just like two brats who are flirting in very bratty ways. But I, I also think that how it happens in the show is like creepy and bad. And I think part of that is even though like I can in some ways see myself in Misato and I can see myself in Kaji, I think that if I met Ano, Ano would probably fucking hate me is like the vibe I have. <laughs> and so like, I don't think Ano actually understands like what it means to like actually have this as like a consensual fun way that you flirt with someone and instead is just like is doing it but it is doing it in this like way that like doesn't actually capture it's like when i was like complaining about the stuff that happens in persona 3 portable around i guess at the end of the max rank of like there's stuff in here that actually hits on something that is like interesting to me and to like the way that i express sexuality and yet the way that it, this is being handled is not actually like fully capturing that and it is not like portraying it with the other thing that you need to have happen there or that you need to have like explicit there for it to be a thing that becomes like not creepy and bad which is like the 
explicitness of this being like uh, a consensual thing that both people are enjoying that like the the act of like flustering people is something that it can be enjoyable and that but that if you're doing it non-consensually that's where it gets like weird and i feel like the show like never the show will kind of confirm that like misato likes this but it often does it within this tropey way of like oh all girls actually like it if you do this so when they say no don't listen to them which is bad and wrong and like fuck that and i i i don't think that the show does enough to like fight that reading in a way where then i agree with you that like kaji is bad and that i think the whole relationship with like misato and kaji is like not a good one even as i can also look at it and be like oh wow like kaji's just misato's top that's what's happening here (laughs) yeah so (laughs) I so I I I'm just gonna like apologize because I'm about to go on a rant. Um No do get you rant, you rant. I okay. I have enough rants. Um I'll sit back. <laughs> so like so much of our discussion has has been driving at like these these key points of tension in the show. And I spoke earlier, like I mentioned earlier about, I have this kind of like unified reading and, and I'll just say like this reading, I'm this reading, like is, I feel very strongly about it and I, I want to get it out there because I hope that I, I feel it has the potential to like make this series to re- reveal things about this series or like a, uh, a, w- a way of looking at it that is that might make it more meaningful and like less just like outright horrible. So this is going to seem like a big left turn. I think that this series is deeply engaged with like, we talked briefly about like Freud and Anno reading Freud and stuff last time. I think this series is like deeply engaged with psychoanalytic theory um, and specifically with like notions of identity and selfhood and is like in in many ways, like a deep philosophical investigation of that. Um, For me, the way that this is like actually fleshed out in the like arc that the narrative takes and the way the characterization is done actually is more resonant with like later readings of Freud, even like, in fact, feminist, like, or quote unquote feminist, because there's debate about this, but like readings of Freud and like takes on psychoanalytic theory, specifically like Yulia Kristeva, who I will like talk about probably next episode. And then after that, her theories are like, in my eyes, very, very valuable. And like, again, Ava is resonant with a lot of like what she's bringing out. Um, I'm always excited when you do your theory bullshit. Cause I feel like I'm often the theory bullshit one. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I got plenty this time. So one of the like essential things in Kristova is the idea of like the divided subject which is something that is like part of psychoanalytic theory, like from Freud through Lacan. Um, but Kristeva addresses it as well. And again, like I'm not an expert on Kristeva, 
Um, I will get, I will flesh this out more later, but just in terms of like putting my cards on the table, um, I think what the fundamental, one of the fundamental things behind Ava and the way it's presenting characterization is this sense that individuals are, subjects are inherently divided, not only like within themselves, but like from others. Uh, We talked a ton about like alienation, this overwhelming sense of alienation that comes back again and again and again in the series. That is one of the big markers, I think, pointing to this, this idea that humans are like inevitably divided from one another and that our ability to like really know ourselves um, and especially to like know each other um, is very limited. And that is something that is like traumatic, but also like ineluctable and necessary for like being a subject and gender and sexuality because this is psychoanalytic theory like is inextricably wrapped up in the process of like coming to of like being a subject having an identity uh coming to like knowledge of that um or realizing that and then in addition to that like this um Another major aspect of Christopher's theory is that the borders of the self are permeable. So like you can only, someone can only constitute their subjecthood in relation to others. Like there's something about subjecthood that entails recognition and like some sort of relation to like not only other individuals, but like just the larger like quote unquote symbolic order, which is like the whole world of like signification established collectively by humans. Anyway, like, but there's this dilemma of, like, if selfhood and subjecthood is necessarily relational, but, like, the division between individuals is, like, terminal and irreconcilable, it makes this process of, like, becoming a subject and being a subject, like, extremely fluid, never fixed, uh, and fraught. So... I'm just going to put like put that there um which I will like bring up later. Now theory for... bullshit. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, theory bullshit. Everyone can clap now. Um I see this as like the overarching defining like driving force behind like the way these characters are presented, especially and, and I think that is especially apparent like with Shinji and Asuka in these episodes and like Ano, I'll just say Ano, like really tips his hand with like the synchronization stuff because so much of these episodes is like dramatizing this desire and necessity for like humans to connect with one another. Um, but then the frustration and impossibility of it um, in this kind of like constantly fluid never fixed, never, like, resolvable process. So you have, like, for example, the very end of, like, episode nine, where they pull off this, like, synchronized attack, they're in perfect sync, like, all of their practices worked out, and they've, like, reached this, they've attained this goal. And then immediately, like, they fall and crash into each other, and then they're, like, bickering and fighting 
And like, this is figured like again and again through these episodes. Yeah. So to take it back to Asuka now, (laughs) um, this is how like, first of all, the relationship between Shinji and Asuka, like is a key vehicle for like, in my reading, um, that Ano uses to like present this overall like concept because of like the division between them. There's this connection, but there's this division, this frustration. And to go back to like episode eight, we see it right away with Asuka calling Shinji a pervert. This is a thing that like, it, as we know, becomes a running joke between them. Like Asuka constantly calling Shinji a pervert. She later says, like, I think it's disgusting at a very important moment. Um, So this, like, to me, actually, it's it's revealing for both characters. First of all, there's, like, this divide between the two of them. This sense of alienation of, like, you know, Asuka being like, oh, I think you're peeking at me. But then Shinji's not really, but her like, you know, saying, oh, you're a pervert because you're peeking, although he's not. But so she's kind of like projecting, but then like, there's some truth in it because, you know, Shinji has like, is sexually repressed in his own way um, and has this like sexual attraction to her clearly, which like, maybe he's not peeking in that moment, but like from all of everything else that happens in episode eight and nine, like we see that he is like, you know, sexually attracted to her. Um, And in this moment, like this is kind of a sign, like a, you know, an example of like a fundamental failure to like communicate on this point. Like they don't understand each other and they're both like trying to like, they're trying to communicate even though it seems like Asuka is just like lashing out, like this is an attempt at something, but like they can't really communicate and that causes like frustration and alienation and so on and so forth. Um, the walls of Jericho thing, like as well, this is like, I, I don't even think I need to like go into the details of this scene where it's like, you know, I, is Asuka awake? Like, is she. Yeah you know what the fuck is happening here like there's some like repressed desire and like some attempt at like communication and connection here that is like you know foiled like on on both ends like it doesn't happen and the like reference of like the walls of Jericho thing I think is a reference to that to this rom-com that happened one night which is just like yeah I rom-com i was Um, laughing when i saw your note in here because i think rob zachney when uh waypoint did evangelion talked about the exact same thing um i do think it is like you know foundational rom-com that this is referencing here but i definitely just laughed because i was like oh this part is just waypoint (laughs) so (laughs) rob zachney did this but it's already been done so do 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 your version maybe it it could be different I was just going to skim over it. I, I feel like really our gonna... taste, I feel like our take in general has been a little bit different. I think we've had a slightly more nuanced take on some of what's happening with like, again, just sexuality in the show, which again is like, 
also just want to say like I have a lot of nuanced takes about what's actually happening in the show at the same time some of it is still gross and again like the way that it then balloons out into like a franchise that has these sexualized figures of these young girls that people are like buying and just all of the like weird ways that it it like loses any subtlety or nuance and just turns into like pure fetishistic object within like the franchise as a whole is um not great i'm not saying any of this is good (laughs) Yeah. But I do think I, it is slightly more interesting in the show than like the broader franchise um, where it does just get like gross to me um, yeah. in a, a far more like profound way. I I think I, I don't advocate for ignoring that, that like that is a reality and like needs to be considered. But at the same time, like I think the, the series itself specifically like is doing certain things that even though like the series becomes material that is like then used for those other things. And like, we should interrogate that. Um, yeah. I, I'm not ready to like say that's what the series does. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and um, here's also the whole thing of like, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about Ava early on is so I could talk about like this Misori Hibari essay and just the fact that like, I feel like so often the discourse around this stuff in anime is just like, you know, either anime is bad because of it or like Japan is bad or like all these ways that kind of wipe the hands of the person who is either even in like either enjoying or not enjoying anime. And I think it is like a far more complex issue that, again, especially if you're like an American viewer of anime you are tied up in in a way that is like you can't just be like oh this is a Japan thing because it is something that like the US specifically had a hand in historically so it's also one of those things where I'm like I would much rather we get into this and and actually try to look at it and unpack it even if at the same time I'm still like some of this stuff is just gross um, because I don't want to just write off like oh, this series is great if you don't look at this. Um, I think it is, it's far more productive and something that is like interesting for me to do to look into how is this part of broader systems of the way that like sexuality is employed in lots of cultures and that it is like specifically occurring between the US and Japan in ways that are like deeply tied with other sociopolitical systems. Um, yeah. Which, yeah, which is again I think... like i just want to like have another reminder in this episode <laughs> that like neither of us are like it's great when asuka is sexualized but we are saying this is a really complex thing that's actually worth looking into and not just saying it's bad um yeah, as like a blanket I... statement um at least for us as people doing this podcast and talking about anime i i really hope that no one has taken away <laughs> that's like our point because i <laughs> I yeah I really hope not I I do think this series like very directly confronts the sexuality of preteens um through this lens that I like that I just spent a minute ranting about um but as part of that like program of what it's trying to represent needs to and does just like 
confront this. And I'm not... Is it, like... Is it perfect? Uh, Probably not. Is it, like... But I... A, I don't think perfection is possible um, in that regard. And, like, B, I think that its attempt to do this is, at least on my reading, like, it is meaningful. So I'll just, let me finish this rant really quick, and then we can, like, move on with our lives. The Walls of Jericho thing, the only reason I bring it up, I'm not going to do a whole detailed analysis, but this film is, like, a foundational rom-com, and... The walls of Jericho, like, they end up, like, they're set up to fall. And the two characters, like, they get together and it's basically happily ever after. Why would Anno, or why would the series put this completely, like, random film reference in here? It is very, uh, like, it really draws attention and it doesn't really make sense. Uh, but if you think about it, like in terms of, you know, th- this analysis, it's like, okay, yeah, it, it does make sense because they're creating this parallel between these two characters in this rom-com who like, oh, we're going to evoke the walls of Jericho, this like, you know, this reference. So it makes us, the viewer, like expect a certain conclusion, which is the rom-com ending that they're going to get together and like have happily ever after. But then turns around and gives us a very, 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 very different conclusion, which is, you know, ties into like the the larger point of like how Ava is viewing, you know, humans, human relationships and like sexual relationships. And as, as the final piece of this, like the relationship between Misato and Kaji I, I don't think it's a coincidence that it is cut to from like Shinji and Asuka because I think this is another like this ties in directly with the same thing which is like Kaji and Misato are th- this is a fucked up relationship and like just speaking generally like there's a larger point about like human sexuality and sexual relations are like are are fraught like even i'm not saying like this series is like this is a healthy relationship and like it's still even healthy relationships are fraught like it's just all relationships are fraught even if they're healthy and like this is another like example in the series the series is like oh here's another type of relationship between adults and it's completely different but also like it's really fucked up and look at these people like they're not they're not, there's a dysfunction here they're not able to communicate like they are seemingly like divided within themselves somewhat and divided from each other and i think for on misato's end it's like i do perceive that she is like I do perceive that this is not consensual. Like it's yeah. The Kaji is projecting like your body says yes or whatever, whatever the fucking line is. But like in that elevator scene, 
they're like they're he's kissing her or whatever and then he says that and then there's like a shot after that of misato like seething and like throwing her like her folder or her files that like kaji has just given her and it's clear that like to me at least that like she's extremely upset and not in a way of like oh that cheeky kaji yeah. But in a way of, like, that was... I did not, like, want that. Yeah, I I feel like I'll have, like, more complete thoughts on this when we get to End of Evangelion and the manga, and I can, like, really fully unpack my different takes on, like, different endings of this series, and also, like, my thoughts on especially the manga and why I think it's fundamentally different, but... Like, I think this is one of the the tensions I have with the show of, like, I agree with everything that you said, and yet I, as a person, and I specifically as a, like, queer person whose politics are geared towards, like, queer utopian thinking, I may even still agree that, like, 100% total communication and, like, understanding between individuals is impossible, and yet I think Anno views it as such an impossibility that is at odds with like my own both experiences as well as like philosophical view of the world and and what it can be and it it is one of the like it is one of the core tensions for me with this series and one of the things that like I think I said going into Evangelion that there's a certain nervousness because of how important the series was for me when I first watched this as a teen and like, wh- am I going to hate it now? And I, I don't think I necessarily hate it now, but I, I see it so much as being a reflection of like Anno's depression and how much that was coinciding with like my depression and repression of my queerness when I was watching the series that at the time I truly believed that like any true communication was impossible because I was so like repressed and suppressed and like, um, like just pretending to be a boy and pretending to be straight because like that was what was expected of me. And I think like there, there is a part of me that I think I like briefly talked about this when I talked about persona five that I, like a really interesting version of Persona 5 Royal would be one where Joker is explicitly trans because then with the like new content in Royal that is specifically around like ideas of utopia, you could actually have some sort of meaningful message about like if Joker is trans and what the character offers to Joker in this like false utopia is, oh, you would have been a cis girl all along. You could then have something that would articulate that like actually having access to transness and to queerness is a thing that allows you to like have some sort of understanding and view and like implicit experiential knowledge that there is something outside of the systems that you were taught and that like there are spaces outside of that that you can access and that that are different and that can like push towards utopian forms of existence and i'm saying this 
again, specifically being like right now I have been having to do an extreme amount of communicating. Um, and it is a, a level of communicating with different people about like the things that we need and that we want in our life that the normal like cis heteronormative expectations of relationships would not even figure as a possible conversation that you could have. And those conversations have been productive and those conversations have led to like good situations. Even if I, there's like still sadness, like in general right now, I'm still happy about a lot of the things that are happening right now. And those are things that I am able to access because of my like access to queer uh, ideas of what relationships even can be. And that those are, like once you have access to these other forms that I don't think Anno has access to, you can still believe that like 100% total communication is impossible. But, you know, as we were talking about when we were talking about utopian stuff and with like Zhuang Zhe, there is like in the pushing towards utopia, you are still like creating microcosms of utopia, you're still creating possibilities that are better than what could have happened otherwise. And so like fundamentally, I as a human dis- being disagree with the degree to which I think Anno thinks no one can actually communicate with each other and ask each other for what they want. Like there actually can be a genuine communication between Misato and Kaji where they could talk about like, okay, to what degree is this like desired consensual stuff? To what degree is it not like what would be fun? What would not be fun? And I think like in that read, you can then have a version of Misato and Kaji that is good. And that is like a healthy thing and where they are still doing some of this stuff because it is things that like, are enjoyable to them as human beings. And that is just not like the world that Ava portrays, I think is a true world in that I existed for so long within like this cis heteronormative idea of what gender and sexuality could be. And that it was oppressive in these ways. But I think the series as a whole, like I do not know I think the manga, like part of why I like the manga is it has more possibility for the idea that humans can communicate with each other and that humans can actually push through to some sort of other, like better resolution if they actually just talk to each other about what's going on with them and like what they need and what their wants are and what their desires are in a way that the show, I think, fundamentally believes is impossible. And that is like, that is the wall that I run up to with against with the show and the like tension I always have because I do not agree with the show's point of view of the world necessarily. And yet I also fully understand the show's view of the world as something that I also fundamentally believed when I was like deeply in the closet and in denial and like horribly suicidally depressed. And that also I know that when Anna was making the show, he was also horribly depressed and like potentially had some sort of weird feelings if stuff that's going to happen in later episodes or any indication. So like, yeah, I think it is a, an incredibly like accurate and realistic portrayal of a view that someone can have about the world, but I don't know if it is act- like, I don't think it is actually the true world. And I think there is something better that like Anno at the time that he was making the show, at least cannot ever envision for himself or for the world. Yeah. 
and I can I can see how like the show I can see how this like theory would hit differently like for you in in a way that is like very like important and and I'm just gonna like gesture at this just so anyone listening who's like actually an expert on this like I'm anticipating like queer theory like later takes up I'm not an expert on that either but queer theory like takes up this question obviously I will say just to respond immediately I don't want to give the wrong impression um I don't want to reduce Ava to like there's one if one important final like insight on like the reading that I've laid out which is that I think I don't want to reduce it to just like communication is impossible. Like Christopher and like, and in, in, in my view, like Ava, I don't think is denying that communication can happen and that happiness can happen. Um, and that healthy relationships can happen. Like fundamentally, I, I think it's saying that, and that there are, it, it is going to happen always in flux. Like you're never going to be able to just reach a fixed state of like total communication. There's always going to be like this problem because this problem is a thing that exists like for humans, but like being human is like, nece- like necessarily struggling with that and trying to overcome it. Yeah. I think ultimately, like, my read on Ava is that there is an optimistic ending. And my impression of the manga is, is just as you say, that it's like, its project is to be like, okay, yes, but what happens if maybe there are these problems of, like, recognition, intersubjective recognition um, and identity, but what happens if we actually, like, try to figure out the best way to live with this? And, like, just, like, actually, like, how do we actually, like, deal with this and have, like, a good life through, like, figuring this out? Um, yeah. Whereas I think, like, the show is, like, yes, like, the question that we're asking, the question that the show is asking is a little different, which is, like, even if you, like, make these interventions and reconceptualize and like form the healthiest possible relationship. Like there's still this fundamental problem that is like intractable. And the question we're asking is like, is it even worth it to like be human and like in light of this and ultimately like in my view saying like, yes, it is. Um, But that's like where it, where it ends. Um, so like, that's my, I think the show is just like looking at this, like, yes, this is an intractable problem. Like, does this make being individuals and being humans, like, just like not at all worthwhile and being like, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the other, like, I feel like we should just move on to episode 10 soon because like we're getting into stuff where I'm just like. Again, without spoiling too much, like, I see End of Evangelion as the bleakest ending, 
of like any of the versions of Ava I've seen so far. Whereas like, I think there is hope within the ending in the show. Um, and then like, I think the, the manga is like the most fundamentally hopeful. Um, but like, I feel like we should just really save that for when we get to those stuff and just move on to episode 10. Maybe we've, we've been just talking totally, for a while. Yeah. We just totally <laughs> front it, but that's okay. It, this yes, is the it, podcast. We, normally, we just front load like our discussion for the episode for the, like the first two episodes that we discuss that episode. But now we're just doing it for the entire series. You're welcome, people. <laughs> Dan- dancing around it was just becoming too difficult. Yeah. Um, why? Honestly. Why? Why even bother listening to our later episodes? It's you. Well, you know our take now. Yeah. No, you should listen to it. I'm sure it'll be good. <laughs> this is that's where we like really flesh it out. <sighs> episode ten. Wow. It is wow. It is getting late. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Um, episode episode ten. Um, uh, Asuka is looking forward to the school trip and buys a swimsuit, um, but is disappointed to find that Nerve is keeping all the pilots home in case of an angel attack, uh, and also like for some study hall stuff. While while waiting, of course, an angel. They find an angel this time. Like they find it, it doesn't find them. Yeah, it is so funny to me that, like, they're setting up this whole, like, well, an angel might attack, and then it's not that an angel attacks. They're just like, oh, we found one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go, um, go, go get it. It's still asleep. Um, yeah. So Asuka is chosen to go into the volcano. Doesn't, does she volunteer? I think she does. I think, like, I think it's a combination of, like, she volunteers, and then they're like, well, yeah, also it has to be you because Ava Unit 2 is the only one that, like, has the gear for this currently but i think she also does volunteer so so oscar is chosen uh slash volun chosen um to go into the volcano using the special lava equipment to try and retrieve the embryonic angel so that uh they can acquire live specimen which gendo tells us is very very important for some reason um but uh she goes down there and they put the angel in the special box special angel cage uh and begin to extract it uh but the angel like wakes up or is like you know birthed or whatever uh and grows rapidly blowing the box apart and then you know basically entering into combat with oscar oscar defeats the angel but in an odd last ditch effort seemingly the angel cuts her coolant lines and tries to drag her down. Oddly reminiscent yeah, the, of the, the coolant lines are also like kind of the tether. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Important. <laughs> Thanks. Um, it didn't. Yeah. That's how Asuka is being reeled in. So she's like sinking now that the lines are cut. Shinji dives in at the last second with unit one and rescues her. And then uh, at the end there's, well, there's like some like weird bath hijinks, and then there's a small scene with Asuka and Misato trying to communicate. Asuka asking about Misato's scar, but you know, as we know, it's not a very productive conversation. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's the uh, that's the synopsis. Yeah, my quick here's Sandalfon. I feel like you see very little of Sandalfon, which is the angel in this episode. If you like look up pictures, I feel like you'll get a better image of it than like you actually see in the show. Um, but it kind of reminds me of like a water bear 
the like weird microscopic creature, except it's a big monster. Uh, but there's also like elements that feel kind of like a fungus or like an anemone or something. So I know I don't have like personally too much to say about this episode. Um, honestly, I think this is like one of my least favorite episodes of the show. And some of that is also just that like the fat suit thing is like, I kind of know what they're doing, but also it's just like, come on. This is like a a bit that I don't know. It it like I feel like they do more interesting things around like Asuka and and her like insecurities than like just putting her in a fat suit as if like being fat is a bad thing, which I know is this thing that society society believes, but it still just kind of sucks to like watch this episode as a person who's kind of fat. So yeah, I don't have a I don't have a ton here that like we haven't already talked about in our extensive tirade about Asuka and Misato. Uh, I guess the other thing is just like we really explicitly get Misato being like keep diving even as it gets increasingly dangerous for Asuka um, and like very clearly just putting her at risk to try and like retrieve this angel so um, yeah yeah so there's definitely that there's the side of Misato which is like the the ruthless you know like the pilots are tools, the the Gendo like thing, which we see, and then I I do think that's important because then you have like this, this bath scene like Rare Earth season two. Yeah, um, I mean, like this is our Hot Springs episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like um, it the the scene at the end is explicitly a a Hot Springs scene, but also like. I feel like there's a certain amount of joking of like, oh, it's going to be the hot springs episode. And then the hot spring that they dive into is a volcano. <laughs> Definitely. And then they end up like, at a hot, you know, at an actual like hot spring ultimately. Yeah. But there is something going on here with this. Like, I mean, gender's happening in this bath, like scene. We don't have to like really do a whole detailed, you know, analysis of it necessarily. But I do think again, this contrast coming up of like, Misato five minutes earlier or like 10 minutes earlier being like, okay, keep lowering her. And everyone's like, um, the suit is about to implode and she's going to get like crushed and also melted. And Misato's just like, keep going, keep going. Um, and just like, we have that side of Misato and then we have here like in, in almost like, I don't know if I would say exaggerated because it's like, I guess, technically in character, but, you know, her like full on in this like playful, like, you know, flirtatious mode in this like, yeah, like it's the Ray Earth bath scene where they're just like, you know, goofing off and like flirting and it's all this happy-go-lucky time. (laughs) And I think the, the series is like, I think that contrast is there for a reason Um, to just show like, again, these people are, they have these different like aspects of themselves that are like inextricable, but like not reconciled, like people, you know, having these like different identities or whatever, there's stuff going on with like the humanity of the angels here. I think yeah. I'll probably talk about that later because I have a whole thing with like the idea of abjection. Um, 
I mean, the other, like, you have this note here about when it awakens, there's, like, a baby cry sound. Um, it's like a, like, human baby crying. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there, like, the other thing that I think you can very clearly see here is for most of this episode, the angel is, like, in this embryonic state, mm-hmm. which also has, like, very clear parallels to the embryo that's referred to as Adam, the first human. So, um, you know, some of this is stuff that will get explored more as it goes on, but like, I want to draw that out as I think in a, a specific visual, like somewhat displaced across episodes, but visual parallel that's happening here as well by like specifically having, let's show like an embryonic form of an angel. Um, yeah. And it's like, it's literally, I mean, almost the exact shape of like a human embryo it's it's striking and unmistakable and that is like a huge part of (laughs) there is so many like things going on ava that this is a huge part of the series that we've just like haven't addressed yet um (laughs) like the fact we are we are interested in the characters and how it relates to like systems of you know military hegemony and gender and sexuality this is what the show is but uh yeah there's lots of other stuff going on here i'm sure there are other podcasts that talk way more about what's going on with the humans and angels yeah um i will say like this will become like a a thing i want to bring in and i will but like christopher's like i like concept or notion of abjection i i think is actually a lot of the horror in the series is related to this specifically like centered on the angels but then um i mean like last episode we talked about the like horrifying humanness of the avas that we see um especially like in the first fight exactly and and the connection like shinji being like nerve linked to the angel and then the scene of him like looking into like the angel's human eye and it's like i can't remember exactly how it's presented but it's like in the frame you see like shinji's eye and the angel's eye like staring into each other while they're nerve the the ava's eye sorry thank you <laughs> i you got you you had the gibraltar <laughs> yeah i have the angel but uh you, this is yeah i mean this is like that's the big like waving the like abjection flag thing that happens early on and and it just it continues throughout but i've already like had one uh, theory rant so we're not doing that tonight (laughs) um we'll do that later yeah so that all that stuff is happening um in this episode i also yeah i mean i think we can move on to episode 11 okay so uh episode 11 so this one is kind of the like within a a rom-com or like within a sitcom there's always the the episode that everything takes place in like a small enclosed thing i feel like this is ava's version of it uh there's a suspicious power outage it seems to have been sabotaged this kind of gets revealed as the episode goes on it's like really all of our power generators shouldn't have failed like this. That like, doesn't make sense as a normal failure. It only makes sense as some sort of like act of sabotage. And we kind of get different people stuck together 
uh, in various scenarios. So, uh, you know, the big one that gets played up here is Misato and Kaji stuck together in an elevator. Um, but then we also get, you know, some of the the people, especially centering around Ritsuko and Maya, who uh, we haven't really mentioned Maya before, and I don't even know if they say her name in this episode, but she's like, you know, there are a few like other members of Nerve who have shown up throughout this. Um, I forget the name of the guy who is like first sees the angel and is driving through, but I feel like we get a little bit. Yeah, I feel like we get a little bit of those characters. I mostly just know Maya because like Ritsuko slash Maya is an incredibly common ship in the fandom for reasons that are kind of hinted at in End of Evangelion. Uh, But anyway, you know, they're trying to restore power. We get all these scenes of them like walking around while the like unnamed crew members are doing the menial labor of manually opening doors for them and they just like step over them after they fall trying to open a door or whatever and then we also have Ray, asuka and shinji who are trying to get into ava headquarters and you know trying to go through various side you know the doors are locked so they like take various weird places that they can go to get through and I, this is where I think we start getting the most explicit tension with um, Ray and Asuka, where Asuka's like, I- I'm the leader, I'm in control, and then Ray being like, there's a passage this way we can take, and Asuka being like, hey, I'm the one in control, don't go suggesting things, so where is this passageway anyway? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> the like inferiority complex of yeah. like, Asuka and Ray. Yeah. Um, and then Ray like often being very capable, but having like to some degree, this potential imposter syndrome sort of thing going on. And then of course, Shinji doing all the menial labor just as like the male crew members for uh, Ritsuko and Maya. Then yeah, basically an angel attacks during all of this, because of course uh, this is Madarail, which kind of looks like a four legged daddy long leg style spider where like, you know, the legs go like way high up and then down. Um, and it has like this like you, I like how you like distinguish between like the amount of legs that Mother Isle has and then yeah. like, the amount that an actual Daddy Long Legs has. Yeah. Well it is like it's it has four legs. I want people to know this. <laughs> um and then it has like this body that's almost like a an urn or something that's just like covered with eyes or false eyes or who knows. And uh basically like leaks corrosive liquid or something from the eyes on its body so of course it's you know attacking going through and the crew with like again ritsuko and maya at the like forefront of it are getting everything together so that the avas are ready um the like plugs are ready blah 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 and then the pilots arrive they climb in to their avas they like i do love the moment of like it's time to launch and then it's just like them crawling up the like launch ducks <laughs> yeah and then have this fight with the angel um they don't really address the whole like time limit power thing that's been a a thing throughout like all of this like a big thing that we haven't mentioned is that often the like umbilical power cord will get severed and then they'll be like, there's only five minutes left. Um, and I feel like they don't really do that here. Um, they just kind of like conveniently forget that that was a thing. That's a good point. I don't know if yeah. it's ever grounded, like, cause they use like 
like diesel power or something to like strike yeah. them. And I don't think it's ever said like this allows us to <laughs> to like have them not be tethered to whatever. Yeah. But yeah, and then there's like this moment where Asuka's like Hey, I'm gonna like be a shield for the angel's corrosive tears, uh, and then move out in the last minute so that like the last moment so that uh Shinji can like get in the shot and kill it. This is like it's a it's a fine episode. There's like some cute well, quote unquote cute scenes. Like the the scene of Ritsuko and Maya stepping over the crew members who like fall over after opening the door is funny but is also like clearly playing into gender stuff happening but you know i don't i don't have too much to say about this episode we just talked a lot and you know like i think one of the things that happens here is we get the first real discussion of the magi system that it like (laughs) essentially runs the government but i would rather talk more about that like the magi when we get to episode 13 yeah so yeah the other thing i want to point out here and then I'll see like if you have stuff to talk about is when the elevator opens and like Ritsuka and Maya are there uh, and they see like Kanji and Masato are like trying to figure out some way to crawl out and then they fall when the power is restored and the door opens um, and they're like tangled up on top of each other. Um, and Maya says, disgusting, which is a word that now stands out to me because I've watched End of Evangelion, but I will say no more. <laughs> I just want to call attention to it here. We do. Yeah. There's so much of us just being like, Hey, like I'm going to point at this thing and remember it later. Mm -hmm. Um, Dear listener. Look, look, I might talk (laughs) about this later. Okay. Um, Anyway, do you have um, thoughts? Yeah. I think, I mean, also just like in the interest of time, because I think we said, we didn't front load it. We center loaded it. That's what we did. Yeah. We really, like last episode, we went we went deep in the paint, like or I guess episode eight, no episode nine. That's where we really, whichever one. Yeah, nine, nine and ten. Um, yeah, especially so, nine. We got deep into it. <laughs> I'm I'm not I'm not even done. Like I had some I was whatever some more comments, but um. <laughs> so we're gonna run through. We these, can't like, do five hour episodes, Connor. We just can't. I'm sorry. I know I said this with like four hour episodes, but still. <laughs> no, it's, I think three hours is, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It, three hours <laughs> is enough. Three hours and 30 minutes. I have to sleep at hours. some point. So the thing, the main thing that stands out to me about this episode is that like, it seems uh, in many ways to be an unusually optimistic, like given what we've seen, how the series has progressed so far. There so far, there's been this like overwhelming sense of alienation, um, all these relationships being defined by it. But here we have this kind of very different picture of of humanity, systems breaking down. So you know all of this power is shut off, and when these systems break down, like people unite to overcome. I, I think a lot of there's a lot of content in this episode, like centered on this, showing people like working together to overcome like these long odds and this like, you know, immense challenge. Um, and then like succeeding, uh, and defeating the angel, um, and all of that. Yeah. And then like at the end of the episode, uh, to kind of like put a fine point on it, Ray and Asuka and Shinji, 
share this moment together where, you know, they're watching over like the city uh, and the city, they're like, oh, the city is so lonely. It's like no one lives there or something. And then the lights all come on. And it's like the city being like, no, you're not, you're not alone. Like people, people do live here. We, we all live together and look at this visual representation of that, which stood out to me as a contrast to Shinji's earlier. Um, I can't remember what episode it is, but when he's walking through the city and he's like saying how the city is so lonely, it seems like here that's just like in, in dialogue with that scene being like, yeah. No, it's not lonely. Like, look at all these people here living together. And so given that I just went on this big rant about, like, oh, Ava has this, like, arguably pessimistic view of, like, humanity and human sociality or whatever, does this just, like, completely reverse that? Actually, like, I don't think so. There's this comment by Ray at the very end of this moment that they're all having together um, where she says, like, man has feared the darkness, carving away at it with fire, which, like, damn Ray. <laughs> you really got to go there. It's like... Ray, like, I don't have a, a ton to say about this episode other than this is an episode where, like, the read of Ray as, oh, like, she's just a doll, blah, 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 is just, like, so at odds with stuff that she vocalizes about herself here. Um, and about like humanity and how she fits into things where like she like you also have this note here of Asuka being like oh like you're the favored one like you're the favorite and Ray just being like I'm not favored I know that quite well Um, Mm. which is again this is a lot of stuff that I think like we'll be able to talk about in more depth when we get to more stuff about Ray but there are just so many moments where like Ray clearly has clearly has this like understanding that she is supposed to be like a doll or a tool or like something that is being used by nerve and the people within it and is in some ways just like depressively accepting it but also i think has like a greater degree of self-awareness than like even in the show than i think a lot of people often give her and that i think the manga does a much better job of like explicitly drawing out yeah, to me, this reading of, like, Ray is just a doll, I, I I feel like it just misses the mark so much that I don't even want to, like, <laughs> I don't even feel it needs refuting, especially knowing, like, how the series ends. It is, to me, like, that reading is, it's impossible to support. And the fact that, like, Ray doesn't have like many speaking parts to me is like Ray's silence speaks volumes and like indicates like an immense mysterious like interiority that is like a very like palpable and like important presence like throughout the entire series um and so that like when people the the doll reading to me is just like no um <laughs> i just i feel some degree as someone who's probably like i spent a lot of high school being 
absorbed in the fandom discourse around Ava that I like feel a need to explicitly call out like this isn't just dumb reading Um, (laughs) that I like want to still say like people have this reading and you're like if you have this reading that like Ray is just fundamentally a doll and just like does whatever she's told in like this very uncritical way you did not watch the show in my opinion (laughs) yeah (laughs) like like, you don't you didn't spend any time trying to understand this character you literally just took one line that Asuka said said like Asuka is best girl and went with it (laughs) Yeah, like, I, I don't want to, like, shame anyone or whatever. I mean, unless you have some really t- toxic reading. Yeah, um, I mean, I do. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, th- there you go. Like, you don't have to... I don't, if you thought that and were, like, genuinely, like, oh, I didn't think about it this other way, like, d- I'm not attacking you. Um, yeah. But, like, I just think in, in attentive reading or an attentive uh, viewing of like of this series would just entirely preclude that reading. And I just and, think and, if you think who is best girl is an actually interesting conversation to have about Ava and you're not doing it like tongue in cheek, let's use this shitty terminology. You should probably just not listen to our show or you should, and hopefully learn something. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just I'm I'm like full abrasive right now. Anyway. No, it's okay. I I I mean I agree with you. I agree. I just don't even want to like waste time on yeah. <laughs> on on the on that. Speaking like, of, do you have any final thoughts, or should we move on to episode twelve? <laughs> um, yes, my final thought is like Ray's comment is really significant here. Shinji and Asuka are like contemplating the fact that of like everything we've seen in this episode which is humans being able to like, in fact, being able to connect collectively and, you know, do the, do these things together. Um, and they say, well, you know, like we're like contemplating on how this is possible um, or why. And Ray says, you know, man has feared the darkness, carving away at it with fire, which again, like, what is this really saying about human sociality? Something that is like, I don't think it obliterates the hopefulness, but it situates it within a more like dark reflection, which is that like we are drawn to each other. The thing that draws us together is like to some extent like fear and like, you know, fear of like loneliness or disorder or darkness, whatever it may be. And the reason I don't think that's just totally bleak is because it means that, like, even if, like, alienation, division are these, like, d- fundamental features of our existence, like, just as fundamental is, like, the fact that we need each other. And, like, relationality is essential. So, yeah, there's this kind of twist here at the end that brings the overall content of the episode more into line with, like, what I think is, you know, the overall thematic, like, arc of Ava, um, but also deepens it in this essential way. So, yeah, we can move on now. <laughs> yeah. Um, episode, episode 12. <laughs> yes. Um, episode 12. We get a brief flashback to the events of the second impact in the far-off year of 2080. Uh, back in the present future of 2015, <laughs> um Misato has been promoted from captain to major. 
Yeah, Kinsuke. we have Major Kitsuragi. Uh, we have another Major K. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I noticed that as well. I was like, wow, this is cool. Yeah. We have a, yeah, it's just like a couple of letters rearranged. And we yeah. have Misato yeah. Kitsuragi, Motoko. Yeah. Just like uh, Katabato. Misato! Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bato. So, Miss you, Bato. <laughs> you really do. You really do. Maybe you'll come back. I don't know. Um, Kensuke plans a surprise party for Misato to celebrate, um, which is attended by Shinji, Asuka, Kensuke, Toji, Hikari, and um, eventually crash in the party is Hiskaji and Rutsuko. While this is happening, another angel appears, this time in orbit above the Earth, um, and is like basically orbitally bombarding uh, Japan by dropping small pieces of itself. And this, they're quickly, uh, Nerve quickly deduces that it's like more or less calibrating its targeting system uh, to drop its entire body on Nerve headquarters and just like obliterate everything. Misato develops a plan. Uh, where the Avas will like simultaneously like run and jump and catch the angel as it's falling, <laughs> um, contain it in their AT field and then kill it before you know arrest basically like, arrest the impact and then kill the angel before it can like you know do whatever it's going to do. Yeah. Um, if you it, if you watch the scene where they're like up on a hill and there's like them trying to hold this thing that's falling from space and like trying to contain it and like just the general vibes of like these weird figures up on a hill and everything. And they're like, I wish that there was an anime that had just like these vibes in spades. Uh, watch Fooly Cooly. <laughs> <laughs> like this show gives like this episode gives me strong Fooly Cooly vibes in particular, even down to the, like they are kind of trying to catch a pop fly. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say I feel I need to apologize to Fully Cooly because I kind of ripped on it earlier and I really don't remember it that well. So I think, like, yeah, I I'm like I have not watched Fully Cooly in a while. I liked it a lot when I watched it many times. Um, <laughs> it's probably something that would be interesting to revisit on here, especially because it's short enough that we could like literally just do one episode on it. But uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, sorry. I did you uh, did you have more comments or do you want me to? I guess I could describe Saakiel here, who's just like this almost like orange ink splotch of an angel. Uh, so there's like an eye in the center, and then these like wing arm hand things coming out that kind of look like like gecko hands or something, <laughs> um, and that have like kind of eye like symbols like on the hands so you know describing the angels for people people like monster designs yeah it that's the whole other thing about ava that we just like we've just completely disregarded like lore like animation like monster design just blown past all of that we Um, know what this show is i just (laughs) i actually do like some of the angel designs in this so that's why i've like made a point to describe them um yeah, me too. This one reminds me. I'm just gonna like make the help, very helpful contribution of like a Pokemon reference. <laughs> um, this one reminds me of. It really reminds me of an unknown. Yeah, I don't know which letter unknown. 
Um, but like, I feel like both like are me. probably referencing some sort of like native art in a way that like might be weird and appropriative when you really think about it, but still looks cool. Yeah, that like in and of itself, we can. If you're if you're interested in having us look, try and look at that right into the question bucket. Yeah, ghostdiverspod at gmail dot com. Anyway, I'm done. Just like being a complete distraction. <laughs> no, I mean it's you know it 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 really it helps me more more than you more than you let on. So I'm just gonna like throw these two things out here. I. There's a scene with Gendo here. We see Gendo at the South Pole. Um, there's a conversation between him and like the vice commander. Uh, I'm not going to like go through it in detail, but I will make some comments that like if you want to watch it, then you can evaluate. You can like read it in, in line with this. So I mentioned earlier, like I think the show is doing some things that are resonant with like later like feminist approaches to psychoanalytic theory. Gendo, for me, I also mentioned that I think Gendo, I see him as, like, the primary antagonist in this series in a lot of ways. Gendo, to me, is, like, this this series, like, representing the classical, patriarchal concept of the self that is later, like, critiqued heavily by many, like, theorists. Um, but this idea of the self as like a unified um, subject that has like mastery over itself um, and then can use objective, like it's perfect objective reason to control the world around it. This is like, and I'm just gesturing at like this whole rich tradition of like philosophy dealing with this problem. But I really think that Gendo, like in my reading, Gendo is the antagonist precisely because he is this an analog for this concept. Gendo's obsession with an ideal of like quote unquote man um, is predicated totally on control and mastery. He expresses like an obsession with mastering uh, himself, like technology, nature, and even like the supernatural in the form of, of the angels. He, he wants to like, contain or he wants to like defeat contain uh control and manipulate like basically all the powers in the world and it just so happens that all of these individuals also fall under that purview um and he exercises this um as we've seen like this dicta uh, dictatorial like control to try and manipulate everybody so yeah to me gendo is this archetype of the idealized patriarchal model of selfhood um, yeah. He's obsessed with purgation uh, and totality, and this becomes important like later on. I think the series is setting him up as like a dysfunctional, like an antagonist for a reason, uh, because it's critiquing this like concept heavily. So yeah, I yeah, and I think this also points to like for me the the core interest of this episode is the way that this episode is like pairing up Shinji and Misato in various ways. Um, at the party, we kind of, we see everyone else like kind of having fun and laughing. And then Misato and Shinji are both kind of observing it with like some remove or distance um, while everyone else is kind of like having a fun time. 
and then Shinji attempts some sort of connection with Misato. And throughout this, we kind of, we get the, like, here's Gendo and Shinji's relationship with Gendo as a father, as well as, like, Misato talking to Shinji about her relationship with her father, which, you know... The, the stuff that happens with the second impact flashback. Um, one, there's just like massive wings coming out of Antarctica that are like, you know, you see from space, like giant wings coming out of the planet and just like horrific screaming. <laughs> um, and Masato's father like saves her, puts her in an escape pod that looks kind of like the entry plug and like gives her this yeah. cross necklace that she wears throughout the series. And, you know, Throughout it, we sometimes had these, like, references, especially Ritsuko talking to Misato about, like, you're trying to get revenge on the angels. And here Misato specifically says, like, she's trying to get revenge on her father so that she can finally free herself of him. And that is, like, being set up in some ways in parallel with what's going on with Shinji and Gendo. And then the interaction that happens here where Gendo is still in the Antarctic and, uh, you know, calls on the phone and is like, hey, did the, like, first pilot that got there, which was Shinji, like, is is he listening? And they're like, yeah. And it's just like, good work. Um, and then Shinji's like, it was so nice when my dad said good work to me. And Asuka's like, you're dumb. <laughs> like, why are you piloting for your dad saying great work? Um, but, yeah, I, like, I, I'm sure you have additional thoughts here. I know you do because you have a thing highlighted, but I'm like drawing that out specifically here as I think for me, the core tension of this episode um, is like really laying a lot of this paternal stuff out and also using it as like the show continues to like draw parallels between characters and have moments where they like attempt some sort of connection. And I think often like actually fail because Shinji being happy that Gendo said, like good work to him is like at odds with like what Misato was possibly trying to convey to him. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, and it, this is where like, I think that, I mean, if this is not obvious already based on like the many things that we said around this issue, I think this is a show that is really easy to like misinterpret. <laughs> um, yeah, and it, it doesn't give you a lot of help in terms of being like here this is what you know like this is how you should look at this um, it just start, like draws these connections very vaguely and then leaves you to your own devices but like I think it'd be very easy to see this like the end of this episode as something happy because Shinji sees it as like something happy where he's like hey you know I've been struggling to figure out like why I do this, why I'm like allowing myself to be manipulated like this. But then my father, when he praised me, like when he finally acknowledged me, I felt like great. And I think this is why I'm doing it. And I'm like having a major breakthrough and figuring myself out again in my reading, like he's, he's not, this is like, this is him it is like a milestone instead of him being like, I'm coming to this knowledge of myself. It's like, no, like we are seeing how conditioned and like manipulated you are. Like what, what stage you're at with this to where like, this is exactly what Gendo wants from you. And 
there is a deep irony about this where it's like Shinji presents it as like, oh, I've had a breakthrough, but it's actually kind of the opposite. And it's another like representation of this, like the limits of self-knowledge where like, you know, to some extent, like self-knowledge is impossible um, or not like fully possible and, uh, you know, if the dominant system is like, hey, like, y- your identity is, like, predicated on, like, satisfying, like, gaining recognition from, like, the powers that be, that's kind of where we want you to be, right? Um, yeah. So I, I see I see this as, like, deeply ironic, even though it is presented 100%, like, warm and fuzzy. Um, it's just, like... This is a really dark, like, moment for me. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so, so episode thirteen. <laughs> yeah, episode thirteen. Let's like, let's yeah, let's wrap this up. Um, so during a test of the pilots interfacing in the entry plugs without the assistance of the plug suits, uh, AKA they have to get naked. And for some reason, walk through a long hallway through the clean room listeners wait for after the ending theme for a nice little joke about that. (laughs) The, uh, you know, they're doing this test. It's like in these dummy bodies. Uh, so it's not the actual evangelions. It's like these, it's basically like torsos with arms, that are in some weird liquid. Um, but while this, this test is happening, um, and they're just like synchronizing, Hey, how well can people synchronize without the plug suits assisting this strange corrosion begins to develop inside nerve. And it is like rapidly spreading. Um, there's various things where they're trying to like lock it down and contain this contamination, including the pilots get ejected. Uh, and for most of the episode just are not, here like we finally get a call back at the end of them in the middle of like some lake naked in the entry plugs being like (laughs) can someone please come save us already (laughs) um but you know there's like them locking down areas of the headquarters um there are these like weird submarine things that come out well they're not like weird but they're we haven't seen them before and they're just like little robot things with lasers um and when they try and shoot it it has an at field and it turns out that it's an angel this is honestly like one of my favorite angels even though i wrote the notes for what is the like design for uriel the this angel and i I just put corrosion lol (laughs) um but yeah it's like some sort of weird microscopic life form we actually get micro machines called out again cyborg here we go micro machines further leading <laughs> credence to my theory that like in japan it's just micro machines and in the u.s it's just nano machines but anyway they're they're microscopic thing like the angels created of these microscopic organisms that are like rapidly evolving essentially is the explanation anyways and that they supposedly take the form of computer circuits and then begin to hack into the magi system um so a lot of this episode really focuses around the magi system here and we get it's melchior baltazar and casper so it's basically these like three supercomputers uh we get more reveal about it that i'll i will have some thoughts on here but basically the plan is like 
we are going to convince it to reach the end of evolution, which is self-destruction. And so just the idea that the end of evolution is self-destruction is just like stated as fact here, um, which is, I'm sure we won't have thoughts about that. (laughs) Um, And so Ritsuko like basically succeeds in doing this back hack. I like, I love this representation of just like the Magi rises up and it's just these weird tubes and pipes and wires and you know both visually and then literally evoking like human brain and like the way that the folds of the brain look and then like Ritsuko crawling in there and we have all of these notes posted up inside that are like literally back doors explaining how it works and of course Notes are everywhere, and then scrawled across multiple notes is Ikari, you jerk. I'm sure that won't be significant or come up at all again. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, Ritsuko succeeds with like barely a second to spare. Uh, the back hack works, the angel self terminates, and the magi is saved. And during it, we get these scenes of like Misato helping out Ritsuko and being like, oh, you know, it was just like college days. This is so fun. Um, Misato is definitely gay for Ritsuko here. I will t- I will take no arguments to the contrary. Um, Misato makes coffee for Ritsuko and she's like, you know, normally I don't like your coffee, but I'm also gay for you. So I like your coffee right now. And yeah, in the process, we get the whole like, oh, this thing was built by my mother. You know, Ritsuko saying like my mother designed this and the three different computers represent the three different versions of her her as a scientist her as a mother and her as a woman and it's like about the fundamental like internal conflict within people and the like different roles that they're meant to perform a thing that i find somewhat interesting and yet also again like there's some like it it is so hard often for me to fully un- untangle to what degree is ano just like uh, actually being gross and sexist about things and to what degree is he just trying to like represent the ways that society often views these things like a woman could still very well think of herself that way yeah but but also it like so often i feel like this show points at something and i don't want to fully say that like this is inaccurate and yet I also feel like I like me as especially now a trans woman watching this show where I'm just like, I feel like often these characters and especially the female characters are not like, I I want more space for them to just be like actually complex and human. And that so often, I mean, I think this show does it with a lot of characters, but so often they kind of get like reduced to varying degrees to like mental complexes or like, you know, psychological views of the nature of humanity. Um, And I think that's just what the show is interested in. And sometimes it works for me and and sometimes it doesn't. And this is one where it's like really sitting on the line for me as someone who is like, also has to, you know, within myself, juggle the like different roles that i'm expected to play so yeah that's i like did my spiel and also most of my notes here but i'm sure i'll have responses as you talk about things because i know you have you have more notes (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think um just picking up like on that exact same point 
Yeah, I mean, this is a core tension that we keep coming to again and again. Um, I, I actually felt like this portrayal of like Ritsuko's mother was actually kind of interesting. First, in the sense of like the Magi being kind of like an analog of this like divided subject thing that I was talking about. If people have like different I, roles, oh, go yeah, ahead. I th- I think like the part that stands out to me that that makes this more interesting is if it was literally just the Magi is divided subject and here are the three roles that like uh, Ritsuko's mother believes like represents her of like the career woman, the mother, and then like the sexual being. Some of that tracks is true, but also it's like there's a weird shitty reductivism to it. And the part that like complicates it and makes it interesting to me is specifically the like the notes that Ritsuko's mother leaves behind and the like the suggestion in those notes of like the incompleteness or the the like messiness of this attempt to like tidily compartmentalize like the three versions of herself that like in in being able to then go into it and it's just like this tangle of wires and these notes that are telling you all of these things about it and that also have like these other parts, you know, have these additional messages scrawled on it that are like even beyond just here's how the system works. I feel like for me that complicates it from this like purely here are the three ideal forms of like my sense of womanhood into this is actually like a process that many people go through to try to compartmentalize or like to try to um, understand themselves as like fitting different roles and how they're trying to juggle those. But that it is actually like far messier than like when you actually lift it up and try and look into that, it becomes far messier. And we get that like literally visualized here in the form of all the notes and in the form of like, the Magi system looking like these pristine boxes. And then once it lifts up, it's, you know, weird metal, like serial experiments lane shit. Yeah. And also like physical, like these physical markers of like her literal brain (laughs) and, you know, these notes. Yeah. I mean, you just did like, I mean, that that's, that's a perfect reading. Like in my eyes, I think, yeah. I mean, I think it's an analog, like, that's how this is interesting to me as well as like an analog of this thing that we're talking about a way of representing like the divided subject where like we have these different rules that are like you know defining us in some way but then there's also like it it's not that neat either i think that's all like brought out here and and you I mean, you articulated it like perfectly so the one other thing is that that I will add to that is like I don't think it's a coincidence that like the division is necessary um and I don't think it's a coincidence that like in this episode they will be like the magi will all be destroyed if they merge completely there's some sense of like though this can't just become an undivided totality like the separation is necessary and that's why like you know it was designed this way or there's there's some logic of like Ritsuka's mother, the genius, like, you know, designing it in a certain way because that was necessary for the functionality. We can also interpret that as being like, you know, a philosophical thing as well, bringing out this this concept. 
I also think it's interesting, like, I mean, you could see this as a stretch, um, but I actually do think this is important. Like, treating, like, a woman, i.e., like, Ritsuko's mother as, like, a subject and, and making her the model of, like, this examination of subjecthood is... It is significant, just since there is, like, this long philosophical tradition of, like, tying subjecthood to, like, masculinity in all of these ways. So the fact that that is, like, reversed here, and it's like, hey, look, like, here's this model of, like, the divided subject, this philosophical model that is, like, presented in analog, um, but it has to, it is, like, a woman who is, like, creating this, and it's, like, reflecting her subjecthood. So this is another instance where I'm like, this actually seems resonant with some of these later like approaches to psychoanalytic theory that are, you know, I'm not going to like leap to the claim of like, Anno is like a feminist or whatever, obviously (laughs) not. Um, But the series itself is doing some things that are like, I I really think are, are resonant, like, and useful for that kind of like reading. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing with, like, so much of psycho- psychoanalytic theory and how it gets applied to media is also, like, oh, here's a horror movie that's about, like, sexually attractive women getting murdered. Let us, like, unpack it not as an intention of the creator, but as, like, something that is reflecting societal tensions. Like, that is what psychoanalytic reading is. It is, like, most psychoanalytic critiques of media are like not auteur theory stuff (laughs) yeah yeah and and i like i i'm not just going to completely be like we can't critique Anno, but i also think that like i i don't know if i agree that like the series itself or Anno like is misogynistic um i i feel like the fundamental divide of us on this podcast is that i think you like both uh ano and also kojima like a lot more than i do (laughs) yeah yeah i like that that's true i mean i do uh, the only way i would revise that is just being like i think that both of them, they. How should I put this? I think there's like a lot of critique of them that is like. I'm not saying it's not valid, but also like. Is somewhat like reductionist in relation to like some of their work. I, I think like. The critique of them being like, oh, your portrayals of women, like, that's, a, they need to be, like, held accountable for that. And that's a discussion that absolutely needs to be had. But oftentimes I see, the way I see that discussion panning out is, like, actually, like, the the thing that we're talking about is, like, more, like, there's more to it than what I think is, is being like concluded um, yeah, for the I sake mean, of like polemic or whatever. This is like the whole thing I'm trying to unpack with Asuka and Misora Hibari and stuff, which is just yeah. like, 
it it can still like like sometimes things that are engaging with these things are also going to end up being bad in their own way and yet i'm more interested in like trying to unpack that than i am in just being like oh let's not engage um yeah but i also like, still say this being like again i think anna would hate me <laughs> if he met me <laughs> we i mean i don't know i don't know enough about anna to speculate on that but you know that's i i'm not gonna like contradict you i just don't know enough <laughs> about anna to like speculate um, it's just the vibe i get i watch evangelion and i'm just like oh okay i think the but yeah i uh, again like (laughs) we can talk about like ava and like like we'll we'll address that like i i know that like we'll talk about like queerness and all of that later on with like shinji and koru and stuff that that will be a good conversation and you know it's true that Ano is like denying that possibility. It like pr- pretty factually, like not not you know not realizing it in the series. So yeah, I mean we'll talk about that. But I also think like the my my other like this is me like further refining my take of if Ano ever met me, he would hate me. Is I think also Ano hates himself. So like. And, and I think those are related. <laughs> yeah. That's... I Yeah. I think that's getting, like... I, I think Anna would hate me for reasons that are tied to why he hates himself and probably things that he would have about how I turned out different than he did. <laughs> and and I don't even know what Anna is like now. You know what I mean? Like... Yeah. I don't know anything I, about... I've heard that his Godzilla movie is really good. Excellent. Maybe we should do that some, at some point. Yeah. Um, but anyway, like all, all of this to say, like I, I'm not like oh, Ano and Kojima are transcendent geniuses that like are should never be critiqued. They like, but I do think that they um, they take some risks that I think are like interesting and admirable. Even if like it, and and sometimes they fail. Like they fail in, in certain ways that like are bad, but they also fail while like succeeding in other ways. Which you know, that's just like kind of a a thing that happens when you try to like deal with really like fraught and complicated concepts. And when you do that, like you need to. Oh, like take responsibility for your failure, but also I want to be like, I don't want to just be like, oh, like, yeah, this polemical reading is really easy, so I'm just going to like reduce everything that is actually interesting about this because I want to make a polemical reading because that is very possible because the failure is real. Um, yeah, I I feel like like an additional piece of context for like my kind of joking like hot take of pairing up Anno in Kojima is also this like kind of joking hot take I have of 
Kojima, Suda51, and Swery are like basically all the same person. The only difference between them is the like budget they are given to then make games. Um, <laughs> and that like if Kojima had an incredibly small budget, like and Swery had a huge budget, like the their idea of like their position in games media space would just be reversed because they're like both doing similar things for me, which is that like, like I find deadly premonition to be a really interesting game. Uh, it is also a game that is like deeply transphobic. Sweary then did a game that is like, I have not played yet, but that a lot of trans people have actually talked about as being like fairly interesting and actually about like, was intentionally about trans themes mm-hmm. um, and that actually handles it fairly interestingly about like this woman trying to move through the world and the way that she has to do it is like these ways that involve dismembering herself um, and that it's like hand handling actual things that like Swery was talking to actual trans people as well in designing it. Although some of those people were abusers. So like take that with a grain of salt and then made Deadly Premonition 2, which again, like, had some deeply transphobic stuff in it and so i think it's also one of these things of like sometimes they just hit on interesting things and yet i like there there's a difference between me or for me between like i i think that like i don't like this person as a person and yet i can still watch evangelion and say there's interesting things here i can watch love and pop a movie that like live action movie that Anno did that I think does some very interesting things and is also like very explicitly about this phenomenon in Japan of young girls like going on dates for money where it's specifically just like you go to a like cafe or something but then also how that can like inflect with more explicit sex work stuff and is also one of these things too where I'm like Anno is like very clearly thinking about this because I think Love and Pop was like the thing he did after Ava, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have to like double check that, but um, where I'm like further, like clearly Anno is thinking and and making media about this and is doing it in ways that are sometimes interesting and yet I think are also fraught and it's sometimes fraught in like the very way of who he is as a person making this that like, you know, like again, my read on Misato and Kaji is that like that could be a very different relationship if it was like a queer person writing the story. Um, like Ava would be very different if a queer person was writing it, and I think I would like it more. But that also doesn't make me—I don't know. Ano might be queer. I mean, he deals with these themes, but like an explicitly out like queer utopian person, it would be—it would be different, and yet that doesn't still like invalidate what I find interesting about Ava, even if sometimes I find like the conclusions that a lot of this stuff lands to is again, like just fundamentally at odds with how I view the world and that I have to like compartmentalize it as a view of the world that people have, but it is not my own. And that like, it is still interesting to unpack that view of the world that is different and like distinct from my own. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if I, I, I've thought about this many times too, like in our falling from our conversations our non-recorded conversations, of course, you know, 
how could Ava be written differently? But it's exactly like the point you made. If someone else had written it, it would be different. But then it would be different. Like it's, it wouldn't be Ava. Like it would be a completely different story. And to me, there is like a profound, like concordance between like the content and the form and everything that's happening in Ava that like the way all of the relationships pan out makes sense to me in that context in a way that like just proposing discrete like changes of like well what if like Shinji actually was able to realize this relationship with Koru um is like it would be if that happened it would become incoherent within itself in a way that like I, I we'll talk about this later or, with, with Ray Earth, but like in a way that I feel Ray Earth becomes incoherent. Um, yeah. Where like it reverses in the opposite direction where it like changes course and like the conclusions that like the narrative forces and contorts itself into are, are breaking the coherence of like everything that has come before. Whereas, like, in Ava, it's like, yeah, these relationships, like, can't be realized because of this world and, like, what and everything that is at stake and happening here. Yeah, and I think this is the thing for me of, like, I think the part that it is sometimes difficult for me in revisiting Ava, it, but also, like, that it is nice is being able to watch this and know how much I was in the same mindset when I first watched it and like how thankful I am that I moved past it, but that doesn't still like make it an interesting or worthwhile thing to look at, especially because of how like directly this resonated with a certain like closeted depressed version of myself that I'm, I'm like glad I no longer am but that was like still a very real version of myself that existed once. Yeah. And I think I don't have as much like personal. Well, no, that's not right. I do have like personal investment in this series. And I think, I mean, I think that's probably coming out, but I like, I admire this series as something that like, approaches these fundamental questions and tries to grapple with them in like in their fullness and like no matter how dark that gets um and even if like we may disagree with the conclusions that it reaches the questions posed and like the grappling with those questions is all to me is is valuable um yeah and like in my reading and maybe I've just twisted it in my mind to become like an optimistic thing, but I don't hate like what I think the end like answer is that like is ultimately like, I don't hate how Ano like concludes this like investigation of these questions. Um, yeah. Or for me, again, we're like getting ahead of ourselves. I think I like the end of the show. I think there are things I like about End of Evangelion, but I think fundamentally I like 
actually hate it. <laughs> so it'll be interesting when we get to it. Yeah, um, that's going to be. But I think instead of us continuing to to dance around episodes that people are not going to listen to for weeks. Do we want to wrap up this? I know you also have like this huge section of counter bullshit that I'm looking at it. And like, we have not talked about Homeric styles defined by externalization or yeah. uh, polyphemus talking to Odysseus. So um, we might want to get to that if we're going to do it. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll do that next time. Um, okay. It just, I was going into this. I was like, I have a theory on like, I have a framework that I want to set up of like reading Ava that I think, you know, could like, could be useful for people. It Like this is a framework that I read it through and like, I think this could have some value. So I'm going to try and set it up. And it like, I have like a thing on the form and a thing on the content and how they relate. And like, I just went with the content port part today. I was going to do the form part and that's, I'll do that later, but yeah, um, I, I'm I, sure we'll have lots of time next time. There won't be anything content wise that we'll really want to dive into. So it'll be fine. <laughs> yep. Yep. I'm just going to copy paste all of these notes into the next one. Yeah. Uh, for dear listeners, if you want to, you know, make sure you're ready for next episode. Mimesis, the representation of reality in Western literature by Eric Auerbach, 1946. Um, there, yeah. you, there you go. <laughs> this this is not a joke, by the way. This is actually like, we're actually going to do this. Yeah. So, yeah. I will like, I will have you like, start with this next time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, which we probably should have done this time, but that's Yeah, we talked about it. We made our choice. It's after midnight. I'm fine with it. I have to work. (laughs) Yep. I'm, uh, yeah. So, dear listener, uh, look forward to, we're going to kick things off next time, just right into some literary theory. So, if you weren't excited before, you definitely are now. That's what everyone comes here for. Really, though? You know? Yeah. They're just the literary weird. theory and also my bratty charms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I think probably maybe more of the second, but <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend I know like, at least a few people who probably come to this podcast for the second, but I'm sure there are people who also like the literary theory. I'm just gonna choose to pretend that I offer something that people <laughs> that people like. Um, you you offer the flustered straight person who has to deal with my brattiness. <laughs> yeah, true, true. That's true. I, I can't. I can't be a brat solo, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When we when we get to well, when we get to, are we doing Ray Earth next? Yes, we are doing Ray Earth next. Okay. Yeah. I I have jokes. Like <laughs> I have jokes for Ray Earth when that time comes. Um, yeah, I feel like there's going to be some wild energy for Ray Earth. I get, I'll just, I'll say Eric because I'm pretty sure it's happening, and then I can just, like, cut this if it doesn't happen. But, you know, 
the person who I always shout out as like, thank you for being the one who said, yeah, we'll host your podcast, Autumn. I think it's just going to join for literally all of Ray Earth. So that'll be a fun time. Uh, that that honestly, I've, I've been thinking on it. And that is honestly like the perfect dynamic because like I will in that arrangement, like I will fully just become Lantis. Just like <laughs> this husk that like was just thrown into this like show because they needed like a cis male. <laughs> and, but See, like I... has like absolutely no content uh like in or like any substance to him. See, I, w- I was going to be slightly more generous with you, Connor, of, like... So, obviously, I'm Hikaru, because, like, I'm the protagonist of this podcast, that's clear. Yeah. Autumn will definitely be Umi, and then I think you're Fu, just because you're, like, the hopelessly straight one. I I will take that. <laughs> um, yeah, I that's that's fantastic, but yeah, I also can't, like... Now that I've seen myself as Lantis, I'm like... You can't unsee it? I mainly do it for the jokes, you know? Um, yeah, I'm just the, the, I will hu- say, the husk. Like, like, the token straight man was thrown in here. Um, yeah, I, I will say, like, as... Uh, in terms of body type, you're definitely more Lantis than Fu. <laughs> um, it, just in my experience. <laughs> yeah, as long as you don't say I'm Furia. Oh, no, no, you're not nearly enough of a brat to be Faria. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, all right, that was a fun diversion. Shall we wrap? Do you yeah, have more to say? Yeah, preview of Ray Earth in three months. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be shorter for people listening. We have, this is weird because next time, dear listener, you're going to hear us talk about episodes 14 through 20 of Neon Genesis Evangelion. But uh, Connor, you and I are going to be in like a week and a half because I postponed and delayed. We will be recording the question bucket for Cromartie High School. um, And we're going to like be recording another question bucket in the middle of us doing Ava. So uh, just the the way it is. It gives me more time to read the manga. Um, Wild. Wild. So yeah. Come back in two weeks, listener, and we'll talk about episodes 14 through 20. If you have questions that you want to write in, like, what is Nia's deal anyway? You can do that at ghostdiverspod at gmail.com. That one was um, me. That, I wrote that one. Um, you can go to exportaud.io or patreon.com slash exportaudio uh, to support the Export Audio Network. Um, also, if you just go there like it is the patreon but there's also just links to a bunch of shows um also if you do like export odd.io slash and then you just like type whatever word comes to you uh you might occasionally land on a podcast there are some that are set up and autumn always forgets what they are but uh like i think if you do export odd.io slash video you can find the youtube channel where like they will stream stuff sometimes so yeah check it out support the network very thankful to be on this network very thankful to know that uh, it is not an imposition um (laughs) that is a joke for a select number of people um shall we do twitter stuff oh yeah i always i I always forget about twitter 
for some reason. Yeah, so you can follow the show at Ghost Divers Pod. Um, you can follow me at Fox Bomb Nia. Um, you can also follow me at Garf Red Aloud if you want to listen to me read Garfield aloud into a camera. I, I'm going to say every day, but sometimes I just forget to do it. It's fine. I... I have to like free myself of caring that I miss days because that's why I stopped doing it the first time is I missed one day and I was just like, well, the project's ruined now. <laughs> um, and now I'm just like, no, it's like fine if I forget to do it for like literally three or four days. Um, I'll get around to it. It's I. It's still funny. I find it really funny to do that Twitter account. Um, I mean, it, and it then does say, <laughs> it, it does it does say Garford aloud and not Garford aloud every day. Yeah, or daily. Um, and then uh, if people want to like follow you and just watch in real time as you forget that Twitter is a thing that exists, where can people do that? Um, at Ravelais, R-A-B-B-L-E-A-I-S. Um, also thank, you, I've... thank you for uh, liking and subscribing to my Twitter. Yeah. Also, I started putting the Twitter in the like episode descriptions, which I'm sure people have noticed by now, but it's a fairly recent thing of me actually like intentionally doing that. So um, yeah, you can also find it down there if you're like, I literally don't know what you said. How do you spell that? Um, I, th- I think that's it. I think I so. Think we're done. As always, thanks for joining us. And uh, we look forward to, to talking at you next time. Um, Should we do a time that is clap? Yeah. Okay. You want to do... Do you have it loaded up? Yeah, it's loaded. Uh, 27. Okay, perfect. Okay. That feel good to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it felt good. Okay. Yeah, I feel like the episode went well. I'm far more yeah. conscious of what I talked about. That's good. Yeah, I think, um, like, I, f- I felt like it took me a minute to get in rhythm early on, but that's no big deal. It The problem was, like, at least for me, was it was just that tension of being, like, I have this whole, like, thing working in the back of my mind, and I'm trying to hold it back, but, like, I really want to talk about it, and... You know, like, yeah, it's hard to just like make these points that are tied to it without while dancing around like the big thesis. So once we had once we got our rants out, I think like I've, I've 
like it really <laughs> coalesced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I think it went well. I there I have no idea what it's like to have some big thing that you want to talk about. <laughs> Could it yeah. be me? Yeah. Um, it, yeah. I do feel bad that like uh there was some stuff with Oscar in episode 9 that I really wanted to like point out that I think is important, but like it is what it is. Um I just think like yeah. it the Shamoon essay, I think that like I I wanted to like follow up on that with I think that is like something that's happening that's seen critically in episode nine with like the the distancing effect of like the photography at the beginning, like the lens and camera, where like we are like watching Kensuke and Koji like take all these creepy photos and like there's a distancing effect that like casts that like attention that she's receiving in like a critical light I feel like but yeah you know I can we can talk about that at some time or maybe not who cares yeah I mean there's there's a lot of stuff in this around like the stage and everything with Asuka that I think is specifically again tying into this like Asuka as girl star where again like there's just so much especially in episode eight and nine that like seem to directly point to Misora and also just like it's like it's very hard for me to especially like knowing Misora Ibari as a figure and like as an important popular figure in Japan even though like now she's primarily remembered for like when she was older and would just sing these like Enka songs um, still just like the importance of this figure and how many parallels there are where I'm like, it seems like even if it's not specifically like referencing this one girl star, that it is still so tied up into those themes in ways that I think are intentional. Like yeah. it is so clearly referring to like a culture that whether Ano is intentionally or not, talking about Misori Bari like has its roots in that in like yeah. a way that it yeah intentional right. or not like I think they are directly connected and it's not even just me like oh let me pull this thing that's like could be illuminating like no I think like this is literally what's happening here um yeah I think you're right um and I think like the I think that is like the way it's per- like portrayed in Ava is like it interest critical and interesting and like deals with like really does portray like Asuka, like the effect of this on Asuka. Um, yeah. And like critically like being like, yeah, look at how like object, like severely objectified she is and how alienating like, yeah, we've gone into like Shinji being alienated, but like look at how alienating this is like for her. Um, I just sent you on Discord the video of the song from the the um, movie Sorrowful Whistle that is like Misora Hibari, you know, doing this like drag impersonation performance and has the dance part 
with a hi Ollie, um, like with an adult woman and everything, just because I think it's interesting to see it and like consider it in addition to that essay and then like what's happening with Oscar and everything. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll watch this when we, when we get off. Um, yeah. And maybe we can bring it up later. Like, I feel like that's an important point that I want to, like, honor that the show does that. And, like, yeah. Um, but. Like, you know. the other thing I haven't mentioned here, and it's because I just don't know if we'll be able to, like, if we'd ever be able to get a copy or, like, a copy would be available to such an extent that I would be comfortable having it be a thing that we watch and talk about. And that like people might be able to access, but I think it even gets mentioned briefly in the essay, but like later on she continued to do male drag stuff, but specifically in like period pieces. And there's this one that is the, um, I think it's like Morino Ishimatsu, which was like this super well-known, you know, like Edo Yakuza figure that was kind of like a folklore figure. And the movie is just like absolutely fascinating to watch because you know most yakuza movies will have like a main character and then like their anaki the like here's a an, another like brother within the yakuza group or whatever mm-hmm. that they like have this like kind of homoerotic relationship with like a lot of yakuza movies are very homoerotic but you then say. <laughs> <laughs> but then within like morino ishimatsu it is specifically uh, so, you know, Misori Hibari is doing the, like, male drag to play the main character, and then the Anaki of the main character is being played by an actor who is primarily known as, like, being a drag queen, basically, about, like, you know, like, the female impersonator stuff within Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, you know, and here he's, like, playing a male character, but then still, like, there is a part at the end of the movie where they do a sung duet and like the, the homoeroticism that happens there is like no longer just latent homoeroticism of like Yakuza movies. It's just like an explicitly queer duet that's happening. (laughs) Um, And that it is like charged by them, like that they are as actors, like different sexes but also what they are known for and what they are like, what Misori Hibari is doing and what this other actor is known for is specifically like a transgressive, like going across to the other side. And so then it becomes like this, like MTF for TMF, (laughs) MTF for FTM thing Mm -hmm. um, of like that also happening. And then it like being this, within the fiction they are both men and so then like it's like queer for that reason as well and it's just like the entire sequence is you're like this is this is like the homoeroticism of yakuza movies made like incredibly explicit and like this is just the gayest shit that's happening (laughs) um and it's like a fantastic film i it's one of my favorite yakuza movies ever but it's like it's very difficult to find because um one probably just like the general erasure of a lot of queer content that happens but then also the the fact that like this is not in the clear mold of what's being brought over when yakuza stuff is being brought over even though again like the first battles without movie starts with 
like very early on two men drinking each other's blood and then like having scenes of them longingly looking at each other through like the the gate at the prison with one on one side and one on the other and like all <laughs> you know the yeah. the whole thing is like he dies and then like trying to like get over your dead lover by then dating someone else who's the other like male anarchy that comes up in that um and then like they have a bad breakup and then that person dies and then you go and you're so overwhelmed with feelings for your your quote-unquote brother that you just like shoot up a bunch of stuff at the funeral um it's just like this is an incredibly gay film <laughs> yeah yeah that's um god it's been a long time since i've actually seen like the first battles without but that would be a good one. I remember like when I saw it just being like this film is doing so much shit. It is like off the wall. <laughs> like it just goes hard the entire length as well. Yeah, it does. And I'm just like this is such a like this film is doing so much with like history <laughs> and like like sexuality and like all and just all of these things that like, yeah, we, you know, whenever we, one day when we start doing movies on this podcast, we can, I think that would probably yeah. be first on the list. I think we will, we will like, yeah, I think the first time that we're like, let's just do a live action movie. My plan is to do all five of those as like uh, a five episode series. Um, yeah, no, I'm pretty much like at a point where I'm like, I can at least say. I was saving this joke for like the podcast later at some point, but I'm like, I'm at this point now where I'm pretty confident where I can be like, yeah, I know what you like. <laughs> I mean, you follow my locked. I project it pretty obviously there. Yeah. And yeah. And also like, <laughs> I mean, just from our conversations, like I'm at a point now where I'm like, yeah, I, even when I'm like watching anime, I'm just like, I know, like, how, how like, you would, like, rewrite this. Like, what, like, I know how you would, like, ship these, like, characters here. I love, I love talking about ships on the podcast, because I'm actually not that big of a shipper, but I just think it's very funny to talk about, like, which characters I think should kiss. Yeah. It, I know there's, like, a whole thing about shipping or whatever that... Yeah, I don't think we do that on the podcast, but um, I, I like after our 08 podcast, I was like, that's it. I've got it. Like that was the final piece of information I needed. And I like I can generate like then I can generate like the Nia ships for for like all the media from now on. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I'm currently opening up. Because we already have a Ghost Divers question for Cromartie High School. Really? I don't know if you saw that. No, I didn't. Um, I mean, it like happened very early on, but... Um, I'm just deleting these like stupid things. 
<laughs> these stupid questions. Yeah. Just like other things that got thrown in there. Um, yeah, it was from. So this one is from a, a friend of mine, Corey. But um, really, you meant. Yeah, you mentioned the concept of finding familiarity with a person when they know of and appreciate some hyper-specific forms of comedy. Do you have any fun anecdotes of dropping a reference to some obscure comedy media and being surprised about whose ears perked up, or even like how many people uh, who are already friends, or like how many people who are already friends didn't even realize uh, they all like something they just never even brought it up before. Um, also, what's one. your favorite cuss word? Mine's fuck. <laughs> I think. That's a great one. Yeah. So I think those will be fun questions. Um, I feel like... I'm not going to say this. It's going to be a lie. I was going to be like, I feel like we won't have nearly as much to say for the Cromartie High School question bucket, but I know us. We we'll didn't even something. talk about Ghost in the Shell. And our ghost in the shell question. Well, I, we kind we, of did. We did for like an hour. Yeah. Ali, true. stop jumping up on this. I let you in because I like you. But you're being a little jerk. Every time you do that, I'm sure it makes a loud noise on the mic. People don't like it. But people do like you. Anyway, More cats. I'm surrounded by small cats. Yeah, no, you're right. I just, because the majority of it was like not gets. I uh, I was like, it feels like a small amount of time that we talked about gets, but actually it was like a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what the question bucket's like for Crow High. We still have a ways to go. Yeah. I mean, whatever media I end up bringing, I doubt I'm going to be ranting about it quite to the extent I did with Persona 3 Portable. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I still need to figure out what, what I'm going to bring. And like, yeah, I don't either. Do a better job of preparing my talking points. Um, um, I feel like we should have it by uh, Friday so that we can just, like, when I do the tweet, I can be like, here's what we're planning on talking about. Um, okay. And unless you want to continue to play coy about it. but No, no, no. I, no I, I'll be cool this time. I'll just tell you. <laughs> so you can be ready um yeah but i, I still need out. to figure out what i'm gonna do as well um and some of it is that i've just like been most of my time has been podcast stuff or this whole thing <laughs> so um yeah it'll probably end up being music honestly that's like the main thing i've had time for because i can just do it while i work well that'd be cool yeah, maybe um, maybe you bring music and I'll bring a video game. Yeah. Because um, I'm playing Final Fantasy VIII right now. And I have thoughts. For the first time, and I have thoughts on it. I have um, never played Final Fantasy VIII, but I hear very good things. It's it's pretty interesting. But maybe and maybe not. We'll see. We'll see if I bring it. Um, but yeah, I'll let you uh, like get to sleep because I know you got to work. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm actually not even like... I've already decided I'm not going to sleep tonight, so I can just keep going. But you have stuff to do. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop recording. Um, yeah, how's it going? Um, it's been all right.
Hey, Greg. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I am still, like, just exhausted, but I'm drinking, for the first time ever on Ghost Divers, I am drinking coffee right now, so... Because otherwise, like, I was, like, going to pass out. <clears throat> um, I was, like, eating dinner, and I was just, like, I'm just going to, like, fall asleep in dinner, so. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the little like loop of tape. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so do you ha do you have like a shitty stuff up or is it just like crumpled on the floor right now? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, anyway, um, it's, I have the wall, like, directly in front of me, behind my computer, um, and some of them seem to be okay, like, I have, one, two, three, seven, and five out of seven seemed to be okay, but two kept, like, falling down, so what I did then was I just took, like, I just took like very long strips of tape and just taped it yeah. over the front. <laughs> so like literally just like it, it's it's like those high school movies where they like tie the kid to the goalpost or whatever. I just like have like several big lines of tape like pinning these things to the wall. Um so yeah, and that looks pretty stable. <laughs> so we're just Sounds gonna good. roll with that for now does it sound yeah. does it sound echoey um i feel like i never hear it really in the discord audio in like the same way that i hear when i get the audacity file um but also i don't think your audio sounds that terrible but <laughs> oh, that's good um i also closed the door i normally keep my office door like open and i closed it because there's a hallway out there and that might yeah like have an effect so anyway these are the lengths <laughs> wait 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 wait, wait. It, there's a hallway i thought there was a clean room well the clean room <laughs> it's a clean hallway 
Oh, it's like in the Ava episodes we watch where they have to walk through the clean hallway naked to the to like get in the the plug suit or like the Ava plugs, yeah. the entry plugs. Yes, that's okay. exactly right. And also I'm naked right now. <laughs> well, I mean obviously. <laughs> it's floating floating in L C L fluid. <laughs> yeah. I, I this one I'm testing it out to see yeah. if our synchronization group goes up. <laughs> All podcasts record in primordial fluid, right? Or like yeah. embryonic fluid or whatever the hell it is. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty yeah. much. I that's still in the that's still in the mail. I don't actually have the <laughs> embryonic fluid yet. Oh, you just have like the water? You better watch out because that it can you can develop a corrosion and then like you gotta try and like Counterhacked the corrosion. Um, it's just a whole ordeal. So I'd really recommend upgrading. I know you just bought all of that soundproofing for your walls, but like... The corrosion just went straight through it. Yeah. If you're going to take podcasting seriously, like you got to get the embryonic fluid to fill your True. podcasting studio with. True. True. Yeah, that's that's in the mail. Yeah. I was waiting for okay. a sale on Amazon. That's how they get you. <laughs> yeah. In that in that goddamn free shipping, let me tell mm-hmm. you. And it's not even really free. Right, yeah. Because you're it's... like you're you're either paying for it with Prime or like really the other thing is if you order enough and then they just like take fucking forever to ship it, like if you don't have Prime. And it's like literally just so that they can like fit it in at a time when they have like some downtime, you know, so they can like keep their workers uh killing themselves in the warehouses. Yeah. It's it's you, not really you free, wouldn't it's just you wouldn't want them obscured. to like Yeah, you wouldn't want them to like go pee or something. So like that's when they put the free shipping. I mean if it's gonna make my shipping take a single second longer, then absolutely not. All right. Um, yeah, I think we. I don't like run through our checklist anymore. I just assume you look through it and make sure. Oh, we do have, um, we do have to do time dot is. Yeah, I just put up time dot is. I was frantically typing it in so I could pretend that I had gone through the checklist. <laughs> like, oh yeah, yeah. It's eight twenty one p.m. Yeah, forty seven seconds. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when do you want to clap? Um, well, before we do that, uh, any other preliminary comments? I, I don't know. So, sorry, this got so postponed. <laughs> oh no, it's it's don't don't even sweat it. It's totally fine. I do have some like bullshit that I want to do, so I don't know if we want to like program that ahead of time or. What, you know what? Fuck bu- it. What's the bullshit you want to do? I want to talk about literary theory. Okay, but it's a... so. Oh, um, you want to talk about it while we're recording the actual podcast, and I've like done the intro and stuff, right? Or do you just want it to be in our like bullshit after the the end music section? No, I want to. I want to talk about it like during the podcast. <laughs> um, I mean that that makes sense. Um, also, I'm it, sending you something online right now. 
Whoa. Online. <laughs> the the app line. Oh. Oh. <laughs> well, it's so modern. Yeah. Um, anyway. Okay, so you have, like, literary bullshit that you want to do. As a distinct thing separate from us discussing an episode? Or would it come up during an episode? I'm just taking a... Sorry, I'm just taking a... This, this thing that you sent me. <laughs> It'll be exciting yeah. to have them on for Ray Earth. <laughs> yeah. It... I mean, if you're wondering, it is. <laughs> that's, that's good. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah. Um, really lost my train of thought there. Um, yeah, so literary theory. <laughs> yeah, sometime during the podcast, I kind of, like, it. it has to do with the narrative style and, like, my take on that. So... I don't know. I let's just like wing it, and I'll figure it out. Okay. I mean, I think the big thing is just as long as it's not like, like if you want to do it before we even get into episode seven, then like I will just throw to you. Otherwise, we can just kind of go, and you can like figure out when it makes sense. Um, I think let's just go. We'll just. We'll hit a point and I'll be like, oh, this is a great time for me to talk about this. Yeah. I mean, if we don't like hit it at any point as we go through the episodes, then we can just like you can hit it at the very end. Um, you know, like after we do episode 13, but before I do the ending. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um. All right. When do you want to clap? Okay. Yes. Back to the clapping. Um, we'll do 27. Okay. All Sounded right. good to me. Should, it should be fine. <laughs> I, I, always feel like 20s. I always hear a little bit of a, like, I always hear a delay, but that makes sense for me. Yeah, because you're, you know, you're in that situation. Your latency, as they say. Yeah, I guess. Or some other thing that you were thinking that I wasn't thinking. No, I just... <laughs> <laughs> I just meant, like... It, it's weird to me to think that I would hear you clapping at the exact same moment that I'm clapping because of how the internet works. Right, yeah. Yeah. That's That's kind of what I was thinking, too. All right. <laughs> so, shall we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, yeah, um, using Gurren Lagann logic, um, Misato devises this plan. The battleships sink. Shinji and Asuka, you know, combine their, their willpower inside the cockpit together and force this angel's mouth open. Um, the battleships crash in and just, like, unload and destroy the entire angel. And then, of course, the, the Ava is, like, completely unharmed by this gigantic explosion um, because of AT fields. 
And um, then at the end, so all this like plays out. There's this triumphant victory. Uh, and then we cut to the end with a scene between Kaji and Gendo, which we haven't touched on Kaji yet, but we will. I know I have some notes on him. Yeah, um, he, he kind of shows up in this episode a little bit as like the... They they kind of set it up as like the Misato to like Asuka's Shinji of like, oh, here's the like older person who's watching this child. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which I that think... will get developed in ways that we'll talk about as it goes on. But yeah, Kaji is bad. Um, <laughs> but at the end, I have it... I have a very complex take about Kaji that we'll get into. My take is not necessarily that kaji and misato is bad but that ano is bad oh and i, like, I missed that because if you're you're yeah we'll get into it we'll get into it fin- finish up your bit <laughs> okay um <laughs> i really wanted to hear that it's a sad thing so uh at the end we have oh, no, this dude, scene we... i think we dropped again okay um hello let's give it let's give it like one more shot can you hear me? Now I can. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go cycle my stuff real quick. Are, are we gonna oh, have to? I'm gonna leave it recording, antenna? but I'm gonna cycle my stuff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You just dropped for a second, so okay. uh, I'll hang out while you cycle. Yeah, I will cycle. I'll be back in a sec. Sorry. Okay. No, no problem. It's okay. Okay, here we go. Hello. Hey, what's up? Good. Um, it took my modem a very long time to cycle. Um, but now it seems to be okay, so... No problem. Yeah, it just means I... you really needed to really needed it, you know? Mm-hmm. I uh, checked the, like, down detector thing, and I guess my provider had like a bunch of reports around 7 30 so it seems like there's less reports now but i don't know i just saw the voice dip again i hope this doesn't turn into a problem we'll see oh well we'll work it out either way um so (laughs) should we just rewind to the first clap um yeah um, part of okay. me is like, am I gonna have to reboot my like my laptop here too? Because I'm seeing it dip. Uh oh. I don't know. Let's let's. Let let's pick up off of. You heard me say the thing about Kaji and Misato and Ano, right? <laughs> no, I didn't. That's the thing that I wanted okay. to do, but I didn't. Um. <laughs> So that's why I'm saying, like, I'll just start in, like, my 75% of the way through the synopsis, and then I'll just repeat what I said. Probably worse. All right, I am back. Okay, cool. Um, Are you in there? Yes. Um, My timekeeping stuff here, though, just in terms of, like, trying to finish it all on time. Um, Let's see. I think, like, I just want to check in with you because I think I don't have too much to say with episode eleven. Like, we, I think we can briefly hit on some of it, but I feel like if we move quickly through that, that will help. 
Also, I don't have a lot to say with episode 12. Like, maybe we'd spend a little bit more time on there, especially around, like, the Misato revenge stuff mm-hmm. um, and, like, some of the Gendo stuff. Um, uh, yeah, I'm cool with... Yeah, we can move quickly but, through 11. But, sure. yeah, I think, like, 11 we can move really quickly through and then 12 we can... Like, I just want to try and focus in on what are the things we really want to hit there because I know... I feel like 13 we're both going to have the most to say about, so I don't want to, like... Of these three, I want us to try and move through 11 and 12 a little bit more and then, like, wrap up with 13 and give that a little bit more time. These are like the, I, the, the two things I'm boarding, right? The two things that I really want to talk about. Okay. On episode 12. Okay. Yeah, and again, I have very little with 11, but we'll, we'll hit on it. Um... Especially because some of the stuff I want to talk about here, like Misato and Kaji, what's the vibe? We already did that. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. (laughs) No, it's fine. It was a good time to do it. Um, Anyway. All right. Um, You want to clap? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. It's true. It's true again. Yeah, well, for editing, I don't, like, need it synced. I just need a clap in there. Um, Okay.